I'm Dr. Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And Tom, oh, the horrors of nightshade and belladonna, bionic. And our listeners are going to find out about that this week, why mm-hmm. they should be fearing that, because this week we have another fantastic guest. We have Dr. Kathy Burns, mm-hmm. uh, who is the author of a number of books, uh, of, including the one we're, we're going to cover this week, called Alcoholics Anonymous Unmask Deception and Deliverance. And we're going to talk about the occult foundations and mission of Alcoholics Anonymous. And this is based upon a tip one of our Futurian listeners gave about his experience with AA and some stuff he had heard about LSD use and other drugs of the founders. I had no idea, had no experience with it, and did some of my own research. And what I found shocked me. And when I did, I said, look, we need to get somebody on. From just what I found disturbing enough, we need to get somebody on who's an expert. Expert, And Dr. Burns had written on this, and I think people are going to find an information-packed show this week, aren't they? It's going to surprise Indeed. them. Indeed. I'll tell you, it must be a level of my just general cynicism to be like, yeah, yeah. Oh, they're involved? Yeah, I figured. Yeah. I figured. Where I was totally evil. You've been around here for a while, haven't you? I, I must. I need to go out into the sunshine yeah. more or well, something. What happens is you see the usual lineup of su- suspects, don't yeah. you, on yeah, this kind exactly, of show? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's all the same players. Ladies and gentlemen, we got to go to our first segment with Dr. Kathy Burns talking about the occult foundations and mission of Alcoholics Anonymous, and then we'll be back to wrap it up here at Future Quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom, interested about uh, a bunch of A's. Bionic. <laughs> At least two A's in particular. A's, yep. uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's great to be with you this week. Uh, we've got another fascinating and a new guest on our show, uh, a prominent author who actually has been quoted a number of times by several guests on our mm-hmm. show in times past. And finally, we went to the source of information on a topic that has become very important to me recently by someone who's done much more research than I on it. We've got with us this week Dr. Kathy Burns, who is the author of the book, Alcoholics Anonymous Unmask, uh, Deception and Deliverance. And we're going to be talking this week about the occult foundations and mission of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, this, this will be yet another topic that's going to raise a lot of eyebrows with some of our listeners and their background. But Dr. Burns, I want to tell you it's an honor to have you on the Future Quake Show. Thank you for this opportunity. I really appreciate it. Well, I, I appreciate the time that you've made for us and providing this information available to us at my request. Um, this this was a topic that uh, came up from one of our emailers uh, who had, who had some questions about some curious background in AA, and it led to me doing some of my own research, and I was frankly shocked with what I found uh, with some just unbiased secular sources. Started looking for what other people had gone further in depth, and that's where I came across your book on this topic, along with a bunch of other titles that that you've done that are so important. To, to begin our important discussions today, could you please tell us and uh, our audience a brief bit about your background and your relationship to Christ? Well, first and foremost, I am a Christian saved by faith in Jesus Christ, and I believe that the Bible is the inspired and errant word of God. Amen. I was, I was saved at the age of five, and since then I've read the Bible through several dozen times. 
I'm also a researcher for about 25 years, and because I have read the Bible so much, I've noticed that a lot of the philosophies and teachings that are invading the church world actually do not line up with the scriptures. Mm -hmm. For instance, tonight we're covering the subject of Alcoholics Anonymous. Many people, including so-called Christian leaders and psychologists, have promoted AA as a Christian group. But to see if this was correct, of course, I read the materials from AA. I went to their mm -hmm. own books put out by their headquarters. And then I compare what I find in the AA materials to the scriptures. And, of course, what I've discovered about AA may be quite shocking to many of your listeners. Mm -hmm. But they're free. And, in fact, I encourage them to actually go to the materials and check them out for themselves because it's right there in their own literature what we're going to discuss this evening. Right. And the, and the book... Um the book that you cite, uh, that you wrote, Alcoholics Anonymous Unmasked, it is fully footnoted. I mean, very extensively, uh, very, very credibly, responsibly footnoted. Your references directly out of their materials that they pass out. So you're not speaking third hand. Uh, you go directly to your yeah. sources. Uh, it's really not there speculation. No, no secrets, yeah. No, uh, just but right from what they say. people have to dig to find this kind of stuff. And, and from your strong Christian upbringing, and your research background, you put it all together to compare to a Christian framework. And that's what's so useful about this book and why a lot of our listeners need to get this book and also need to share it with some friends who maybe have been involved with AA or been touched by it as well. Um, of course, you have a number of other books uh, that, that we hope to have you back in the future on because your work has impacted so many other researchers that we have had on our show. Uh, and again, we're just so excited to have you on here. T to begin our discussion and jump right into the topic, you show in your book that Bill Wilson, who was the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, was profoundly influenced by a unique type of religious group known as the Oxford Group. Could you please explain how they used uh, some kind of means to channel messages from God, who they said was God, uh, how they cozied up to world figures, including, I believe, Heinrich Himmler and even Hitler, and mm -hmm. powerful interest in, in some of the practices that, of theirs that made their way into the AA ideology? Well, the Oxford group was founded by Frank Buckman. He was a Lutheran pastor. And the group was originally called First Century Christian Fellowship. It sounds like a good Christian name. But, and then it, um, the name was changed a little bit later on. Uh, in 1938, they changed the name to MRA, or Moral Rearmament. And then just more recently, in 2001, they once again changed their name to Initiatives of Change. So someone who's actually doing research on the Oxford group may think it's defunct, but it is not. It's going under another name. Well, this group would actually get together for what was called house parties. These house parties would last uh, usually a weekend, maybe one or two weeks, and they'd usually be held at a fashionable inn or a hotel, a summer resort, or maybe a castle or some home of a wealthy person. And usually there was no singing or even public prayer, but there were um, personal talks by the team members. A uh, part of that um, house party would include confession and um, sharing, as part of the program, and during these confessions and sharing many times, the participants would actually graphically confess some of their sexual exploits in mixed company. Mm -hmm. The group also had what was known as quiet times. During these quiet times, the Bucklinites, as they were also known, would sit with a pencil and paper, and then they'd write down any thoughts that would come to them. Well, this is the exact same condition that mediums would use to receive their messages from the spirit world. And, of course, Christians recognize these spirits as actually demons. 
It was during these automatic writing sessions that the popular book God Calling was produced. Hmm. This book is being sold today in many Christian bookstores, sadly, and even Christian um, ministries have um, sold this book, and it's very shocking sometimes, especially if you read it, which I have done, mm-hmm. where they talk about having spirit communication and all. Uh, the Oxford group at, at least one time, maybe many occasions, even called in a psychic medium for entertainment, and she channeled all these different entities. In New York's um, city, Sam Shoemaker was an Oxford group leader, and we found out that um, there were many alcoholics and homeless men who would actually gather at his mission, and they had gone there for lectures on spiritualism. So, as you mentioned now, this was the group there that was um, instrumental in both the founders of AA, both Dr. Bob Smith and Bill Wilson had actually been attending this group. One was in Ohio, one was in New York. And so they were actually Oxford Group members when they decided to found AA. Uh, and I was surprised here, like, oh, when they broke away, they said that um, they they mentioned that the AA um, ideas of, like, self-examination, acknowledgement of character defects, restitution from harm, done and working with others came straight out of the Oxford group. So we, and they said and it came from nowhere else. It really did. But they do have to admit there was a lot of um, ideology coming in to the AA ideas from the Oxford group. Now what's part of the, what caused the separation there was because the Oxford group, as you mentioned, you know, they had some big names that they were mm-hmm. associated with. And some of these people, you know, they were well-to-do, whatever, and they really didn't want to be associated with a bunch of drunks who might go out and get drunk again. You know, it could ruin their influence Mm -hmm. or, you know, cause problems. So they were sort of putting a little bit of pressure on these drunks to sort of go out because they were here looking for prominent names. They wanted all this publicity, and, of course, they didn't want the drugs, you know, to ruin it. Now, some of those Oxford group members are names a lot of people will recognize, so, so, um, such as um, Mr. and Mrs. Henry Ford, Mr. Mm. and Mrs. Harry Guggenheim, Mayor Lagarde of New York City, Joe DiMaggio, Rear Admiral Richard Byrd, Senator Harry Truman, General Pershing, Mae West, the widow of Thomas Edison, and that's just here in the States. Of course, the other countries had their own um, leaders that were also involved. Now, the Oxford Group founder, Frank Buckman, had visited Germany many times. He attended several of the Nazi Party rallies in the early 30s. By 1934, Buckman was actually sitting beside Heinrich Himmler, and there they sat and they discussed religion and politics. In 1935, Buckman once again was there by Himmler, and again they talked about the same topics. Then by 1936, in one of his speeches, Buckman says, and here's a quote, I thank God for a man like Adolf Hitler. Of course, by this time, Hitler had already been in power for three and a half years, so he should have already seen what was going on. It wasn't like he was just coming to the forefront. They already knew that there were problems. And while he was in Berlin, Buckman was talking to another visitor, um, Mr. Um, Kenneth Lindsay, and he was saying, you know, is there anybody you'd like to meet? And I'll listen. Mr. Lindsay thought he knew everybody. And finally, um, Buckman comes out. He says, well, do you know Heinrich Himmler? And Lindsay answered, no. So um, Buckman says, say, you ought to know Heinrich. He's a great lad. Uh, again, by this time, the, the scalpel, you know, the secret police force, they knew that they were known for their brutality and all, yet he is calling Himmler a great lad. Uh, Buckman also bragged that Hitler was very helpful to the Oxford group because he allowed them to have all these parties whenever they wanted. 
And then on August 26, 1936, an interview with Buckman was printed in the New York World Telegram concerning his trip to Germany. And there was a picture of Buckman with this caption, Dr. Frank Buckman, who believes Hitler is Christianity's defender against communism. And again, like I've mentioned, they knew that the persecution was already starting, so um, Buckman seems to have been an admirer of Hitler. And I'd like to just go back real briefly yet to the thought of the channeling that we were discussing there. Both Dr. Bob and Bill were involved with all kinds of psychic phenomena, such as ESP, the seances, spiritualism, mm-hmm. next fancy. Um, they were channeling. Bill became so proficient at this channeling that he had these several different entities that had actually spoken to him and came through and told him his names. On just one occasion, there were at least six different entities came through him. And, of course, we're clearly told in the scriptures that these are forbidden practices. Deuteronomy 18, 10 to 12 warns us that those that do these things are an abomination to the Lord. Uh, Bill also believed in reincarnation, precognition, clairvoyance, and he used the Ouija board. Dr. Bob Smith even read books on Buddhism, and in 1935, when they say that AA was started, Bob and Bill were actually holding seances and other psychic events. And uh, early, excuse me, Dr. Burns, I hate to interrupt you here. Uh, I, I want to pick up on that in just a moment, but but I want I want to just sort of um, sort of wrap up here on on this this issue with. Uh, uh, the Oxford Group. The Oxford Group, as I understand it in summary, what was a group as an international activity that basically attracted the well-to-do, powerful celebrities. Rather than going out to the poor in society, like a lot of missionary groups did at the time, they went to the top. They always traveled first class wherever they went. They went to heads of state. They got involved in these things, and obviously it showed that there were some problems because of the way they cozied up to to Nazism, and of all things, they they gave endorsement to Himmler and he to them, when in the fact Himmler was the guy who developed the false religion ideology of Nazism. He was the one that really helped to author it with a couple other contributors uh, of of a, a fake world occult religion that they devised. So um, it it gives us cause for concern. Of course, we could do a whole show on the Oxford Group about. Um, Current movements we see today of popular evangelical leaders, celebrities, and others that get well-known world leaders and figures, you know, uh, they may be purpose-driven in their activity or whatever they may be, but um, we've been down this road before in the early part of the 20th century, and, and this whole culture that they created with the automatic writing, with the... Um, uh, they said they basically didn't have any doctrine per se. I think by their own admission, uh, they didn't get into that. So he created a a very dangerous cocktail of of pseudo religious belief uh, that set the stage for what became the foundation of AA, as I understand it. Where, where basically, if people want to know where they got the the, the the nature of the twelve steps, the kind of confession environment, and other things, these come directly from the Oxford Group, correct? That's right, the okay. Oxford Group, and then even. Going back with Hitler, though, and we were talking about the channeling and so forth, Hitler was, you know, into all this with the spirit guides and, you know, the channeling and different things of this nature. I mean, the connections go far, far and wide as far as that goes. Right. Well, let's look at this conversion experience, which was a key part of, um, of course, the germination of AA. Uh, but is is really well known in in the group and society is th- this turnaround from Bill Wilson or Bill W as he was known most of the time, who was just a chronic alcoholic. His life was devastated. 
uh, and he he did a turn at a place called Towns Hospital, I believe was the name of it, uh, where he was supposedly cured of this alcoholism and his religious experience. They had a very unique cure formula, uh, and I wanted to get some of your comments on it, and, and I might even add some as well myself, about what comprised this curious cure they called the Belladonna Cure that they administered to him and other people. Do, do you have any information on that? Well, what they would use was a mixture of Belladonna, which is also called Deadly Nightshade, Prickly Ash, Morphine, and Herbane, which is called Insane Root, which is, you'll know why after a while. Right. Now, and, it's and, Henbane, right? Is it Henbane? Yes. Okay, Henbane, yes. okay. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting because in the Middle Ages, the Belladonna was considered to be the favorite plant of the devil, and he supposedly watched over it night and day. And we also know that the witches would smear their bodies with this flying ointment, which contained drugs like the Belladonna, and it would give them these psychological or psychedelic trips, and they thought they were actually flying and so forth. The Belladonna is a psychoactive drug. And it produces visions, and of course it encourages the thought or you think you have an astral projection and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's also interesting because other names for the belladonna would be devil's cherries, sorcerer's berries, and witch's berries. And then the henbane is one of the main ingredients that a shaman would use to enter into his altered state of consciousness so that he can enter into the spirit world and then receive messages from the spirit. So this is the type of treatment. They put a few other items in there, some vitamins mm-hmm. and a few other things. But this is basically the treatment they had given to Bill Wilson. And they would give uh, some of this material or this, um, these um, items here every hour for about 50 hours. And then they'd also give some pills that would help to clean out the intestinal tract. And they said that what would happen many times is when the face would become flushed or the throat dry and when the pupils of the eyes would become dilated, then they tried to either stop or cut back or reduce the um, amount of the um, ingredients that they were giving. But see, this thing is, and when they were all done, supposedly their craving for alcohol would be over. But many times they could not even tell the difference between what would be um, a delirium tremor mm-hmm. or this hallucination from the Belladonna treatment. But anyway, supposedly, uh, the fourth time that um, Bill Wilson entered the town's hospital, and I don't know if he had the treatment the other three times or not, mm-hmm. but the fourth time he entered, when he did have the treatment, he all of a sudden had a very, very unusual experience. Mm-hmm. If I remember right, he had a feeling like he had wind rushing past him, like he was in flight, he was up at an elevated place, and he made a statement, something to the effect, if this is the God of the preachers, then I accept it. Sometimes, ha- yes. However, this is a psychedelically driven event. Now, the the, the, the things you mentioned, the henbane, the uh, night, nightshade, these kind of things, these are old, old, old roots that go back to old ritual spell sorcery casting that, that Wicca, that witches have used for thousands of years, that go back even, I'd say, in the earliest days, probably before the flood, uh, where, where a lot of these things were, were learned and shown about is, is a way to, uh, you know, I think for dark forces to have their impact. And, and they, were, they were disapproved from the earliest days in the Bible to use these very same things, and they're the same chemicals offered in this treatment. Now, from my further research in this area, the origins of it are, are fascinating in their own right, because the gentleman who founded the, these hospitals and treatment, I don't believe, was a medical doctor himself. Uh, he was a businessman. And, well, why let that get in the way? Right? I mean, you know. <laughs> but a mysterious man showed up. <laughs> yeah. Some mysterious figure showed up and gave him a list of these ingredients. 
and said that he would become a very wealthy man if he gave these ingredients to addicts. And then this mysterious figure just disappeared. Okay. No one knows who they are. They just disappeared. Uh, and I guess he began treating people in the mob, uh, people in organized crime that had gotten uh, hooked up on cocaine or opiates or things like that and then progressed to this. So, uh, you know, this just gives a further sinister backdrop to the origins of this type thing and the fact that um, we have a psychedelic experience that is being touted as a religious experience and an encounter with God. Um, what were the experiences, and you alluded to this a little bit more, um, of, of his relationship to God and the type of spiritualism experiences he gauged in throughout his life? Okay, well, um, I was given that quote there. Uh, in Pass It On, it's a book that was approved by the AA headquarters. And they said in there, they, and it was referring to Dr. Bob and Bill both, were working away at the spiritualism. It was not just the hobby, and it related to AA. So the thing was thought of all divorce from AA. Bell never did anything that was not in some way connected with AA and his own spiritual growth. And then in a book entitled Lois Remembers, which was supposedly written by his wife Lois, she says this, and here's the quote, Bill and I and some of our neighboring AA friends became interested in extrasensory perception, or which would be ESP, and used to meet every Saturday night to experiment. Much enlightenment was gained by all. Bill, as usual, when his interest was aroused, became absorbed in the subject and could talk of nothing else except, of course, AA, unquote. And then going back to the experience in the hospital, when he was there, and we do think it's probably more of an hallucinogenic um, experience rather than anything else, but he said he, he still gagged badly on the notion of a power greater than himself. But just at the moment, the last vicious of his proud obstinacy was crushed, and all at once he found himself crying out, if there is a God, let him show himself. I am ready to do anything, anything. And then like you alluded to here, well, he said suddenly the room lit up with a great white light. I was caught up in an ecstasy which there are no words to describe. It seemed to me in the mind's eye that I was on a mountain and that a wind, not of air, but of spirit, was blowing. And then it burst upon me that I was a free man. Slowly the ecstasy subsided. I lay on the bed, but now for a time I was in another world, a new world of consciousness. All about me and through me, there was a wonderful feeling of presence." Unquote. And the strange thing was, he referred to this experience as his hot flash, which I had mentioned, the belladonna cure, when you got the flush face, that was one of the signs, mm -hmm. you know, that you were getting too much. So what kind of experience did he have, you know, right. called experience? <laughs> right. Well, yeah, I even read from his secular biographers that in his house, he kept a room they called the spooky room. Mm -hmm. where they used Ouija boards, where they uh, held seances, like you alluded to earlier. Mm -hmm. This was a fundamental part of his life, in pursuit of spiritualism. And I never saw anything that we would consider a classic type of Christian confession. No. Out of, no. Out of his life or experience. Not at all. But but a very overt and continuous lifelong, both pre or before the beginning of AA, but, but throughout his experience, a strong interest in spiritualism, and all of the other figures that were main figures in AA knew this about him. This was something that they conceded was a part of him. Right, and many of the AA members got together, as I mentioned there in Lois's book, 
her, her, Bill, and several of the other AA mm-hmm. members. They do VM levitation and table topping. They said at one time they were doing something, and all of a sudden one of the guys in the group had a mustache appear on his face, and then he wiped it off. And they thought all these things were just hilarious. They'd have VM table levitating and all this. And it, it was an activity. And as I mentioned, it says, and it related to AA. This was not something separate. It wasn't a different um, item. The two actually did go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. This and this is, is from their own literature. This is critically important that our listeners know about this because uh, they hear things, oh, this is a good group, this is like a Christian group, uh, this this works good with your church, and like you said, even churches have this in, and I doubt many of them have any idea of this background that's clearly in the literature if they would only go look look at it or see it compiled in your book. I have to ask you uh, about this because you're such a good researcher on these topics to, to leave no t- stone unturned. Um, have you ever contacted the AA headquarters to ask them directly if they had had any interest as a group in these occult activities? I did contact the AA headquarters. It's been a few years back now. But I did ask about their involvement in psychic phenomena, and I asked if the psychic phenomena would actually refer to things such as the ESP, visions, meditation, or whatever. And the staff member, I did not get the name, I'm sorry about that, but she had mentioned that the um, psychic phenomena did include those things, and she added that AA is very open to all kinds of phenomena like that. And then I also asked about the higher power. I asked if that could be anyone or anything, and of course the staff member said yes. So I proceeded to say, I said, well, would a Satanist or a person who would worship Satan be welcome in AA? And she said that he would be. And I I think it's also of interest, too, because they're not the only ones that recognize this occult aspect. For instance, um, Marilyn Ferguson, a Mm well-known New Age um, author, she wrote in her book, she said that AA is one of the ways that can alter consciousness. She mentioned all these other um, things like mm. biofeedback, hypnosis, meditation, Zen yoga, EST, silver mind control, dervish dancing, shamanistic rituals, fantasy games such as um, Dungeons and Dragons, Jungian analysis, Gestalt, rebirthing, martial arts. She mentions all this, and, and among it all is Alcoholics Anonymous. And she said all these systems actually bring a deliberate change in consciousness. You know, I, I hope, um, her, hers is one endorsement I hope we never receive at Future Quake. Uh, or her offspring, you know, those after her. Uh, uh, that, that whole line of people. And, and you're right that we're going to talk a little bit more about the New Age connection. Uh, but they are very excited about AA. And they see it completely in line with what they're doing. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future. And Tom. No fan of ESP and paranormal, especially when you slap some big A's on it. Mm-hmm. Bionic. You know, this goes right back into my studies about sorcery. Yeah. This is a real, like so. a, a a practice, a laboratory, a live mm-hmm. example. Live fire exercise. Of, of sorcery in modern day in a popular form affecting many, many millions of people. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's extremely disturbing. Uh, someone else who's disturbing is Merv, who can tell you how to contact us at Future Quake. <laughs> Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. 
Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, we just got a few seconds. Any last words? Uh, let's just get out of here. Let's go mm-hmm. to the next segment and keep, okay. our, keep our eyes peeled. Come back tomorrow for our next segment with Dr. Kathy Burns. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And Tom, scratching my head about Jesuit priests who take LSD, bionic. Well, unlike like you said yesterday, nothing surprises me anymore, right? <laughs> Actually, this one, I was like, oh, well, here's a bunch of Jesuit priests hey. taking LSD. Oh, well. Well, if you didn't join us yesterday, ladies and gentlemen, we're talking with Dr. Kathy Burns, who is the author of the book Alcoholics Anonymous Unmasked, Deception and Deliverance, Where Do the Twelve Steps Lead? It's a book that uh, will just totally shock you when you find some of the information that's in here. You'll find that it's another part of society that is infiltrated by dark occult forces, and she documents it extensively. Writes a very, very good book on this. We're going to open a new chapter in some new impacts, uh, particularly on the more new age side. We we talked about the blatant occult activities yesterday, mm-hmm. like the, the Ouija boards, mm-hmm. the uh, seances, the other spiritualism practices by the founders of AA. Now we're going to talk into more of the new age religious philosophy. Mm-hmm. So, no further ado, here is Dr. Kathy Burns in our next segment, talking about the occult foundations and mission of Alcoholics Anonymous, and then we'll be back to wrap it up here at Future Quake. What were his experiences uh, in the use of LSD, talking about Bill Wilson, and in the backgrounds of his cohorts in these experiments that did this alongside him, uh, such as Aldous Huxley, Gerald Hurd, uh, Clara Booth Lucci, I believe, and the Jesuit priest, Father Ed Dowling. Can you tell us a little bit about the nature of these experiments and some of these people? Well, Bill Wilson met Aldous Huxley through their mutual friend, Gerald Hurd. Both Huxley and Hurd were occultists. Both men had converted to Hinduism, and both played a key role in getting the West Coast to actually accept yoga. Both men were also involved with the LSD experiments. According to New Ager, Marilyn Ferguson again, she says, quote, Huxley believed that the long-predicted religious revival in the United States would start with drugs, not evangelism, unquote. Mm. On Huxley's deathbed, although he was unable to speak, he gave a written request for his wife to give him some LSD. The LSD was referred to as a sacrament, and while he lay dying, his wife read to him from the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Now, Wilson actually took his first dose of LSD in California under the guidance of Gerald Hurd. He invited many of his closest associates to join him in the experience. One of them was a Jesuit priest, Ed Dowling, and he accepted the invitation and he took the LSD. And as I mentioned earlier, Sam Shoemaker was the Oxford group leader here in New York. And, of course, Bill must have been very thrilled about this, and he actually reported to Sam, here's what he said to him, You will be highly interested to know that Father Ed Dowling attended one of our LSD sessions while he was here recently. Father Ed declared himself utterly convinced of its validity and volunteered to take LSD himself, unquote. Bill even um, talked his wife Lois into trying some. 
And then there's a, a letter that he wrote to Sam Shoemaker in 1958. And it's a little lengthy, but I think it's extremely important. So mm-hmm. I'm going to give that quote. He says, through, and this year I want the listeners to really catch because this ties in a lot of what we've already covered. He said, throughout AA, we find a large amount of psychic phenomena, nearly all of it spontaneous. Alcoholic after alcoholic tells me of such experiences and asks if these denote lunacy or do they have real meaning. These psychic experiences have run nearly the full gamut of everything we see in the books. In addition to my original mystical experience, now that's what he's referring to back at Town's Hospital. In addition to that, I've had a lot of such phenomenalism myself. I've taken my surgic acid, which is LSD, several times and have collected considerable information about it. The public is today being led to believe that LSD is a new psychiatric toy of awful dangers. It induces schizophrenia, they say. Nothing could be further from the truth. It was Dr. Humphrey Osmond who first gave the drug to Aldous Huxley. The interest then spread to Gerald Hurd. In the course of three or four years, they have administered LSD to maybe 400 people of all kinds. Extensive tape recordings have been, re- have been taken. The cases have been studied from the biochemical, psychiatric, and spiritual aspects. Again, no harm, no record of any harm, no tendency to addiction. They have also found that there is no physical risk whatsoever. Mm-hmm. The material is about as harmless as aspirin. It was with them that I took my first dose two years ago, unquote. Hmm. Well, you know, th- these people that, that we refer to here, and, and, and everything that we've talked about now, and we will continue the rest of this interview, basically, you know, this one subject ties together so many forces in modern society and American society that are dangerous, that, that are spiritual dangers in society that affect every every part of our life in our society, and they have a crossroads in this this discussion of, of AA and its founding. Uh, just to add a few more points and let your voice have a rest, because I know your, your your voice is having some difficulty tonight. Um, Aldous Huxley is known to most people. I believe he was the author of Brave New World, mm-hmm. which saw a, a future world of the masses being drugged, drugged in a stupor with Soma, whereas you had an elite, a technological elite that ran society in sort of a dictatorial rule. And he not only wrote about that uh, in, in fiction, he really believed it himself. He, he was he part was, of a movement. Yeah. He was part of a movement, along with H.G. Wells and a number of other people, uh, part of eugenic society and things like this, that were trying to create this technocratic society. So this was purely part of his experience. And he wrote a book about uh, the psychedelic part called The Doors of Perception. Uh, about uh, this kind of activity. Um, Gerald Hurd, I, I wasn't that familiar with him, but as I read some of his background, I found out that he almost could be called sort of an early father of the New Age movement, of, of modern New Age activities mm-hmm. in society. He really is the granddaddy of, of the manifestations that we see today in society. I, I mentioned another woman. I hope I not pronounced her, her name wrong. Uh, Claire Booth, is it Lucy or Lucy? I think it's uh, Lucy. Uh, I'm sorry? I think it's loose. Okay, loose. Thank you. Uh, I mispronounce things all the time. Usually, it's Russian scientists on our on yeah. our news, but Iranian uh, folks. The, the key with her, her, she was a uh, 
congressperson, I believe, that was in Congress that was doing these kind of activities as part of their group and studying this. Her her husband, if I understand right, was the the guy who owned Time Magazine mm-hmm. and actually operated Time Magazine. I'm sorry. Henry Luce. Mm-hmm. So, so they're they're a the, the mouthpiece to the media of society, and all these people meet behind closed doors. Things we don't find out till long after the fact, that these very upstanding, respectable members of society are back behind doors doing these kind of things and having impacts not only on AA but on religion, on every other aspect. And we're going to talk more about the impact on religion here in just a minute. Uh, but to bring in another New Age influence in, in our society in, in the last few centuries, what are the occultic elements of the Swedenborgian faith, and how is Bill Wilson tied to that? Emanuel Swedenborg was a medium, a psychic, a clairvoyant, and a cultist. Same thing we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, his practice, or he practiced automatic writing, and he um, did astral travel, which of course would be out of body experiences. He claimed to be in contact with angels and other spirits, which of course, again, as I mentioned, Christians recognize those as demons. And he claimed that, or many people can claim that he is actually, or can rightly be called, the father of spiritualism. So this is a connection for him. He can be claimed as a father of spiritualism. He was also a Mason. And Masonic author Albert Pike tells us that Swedenborg's um, system was nothing more than the Kabbalah minus the principle of the hierarchy. And as some of your listeners are probably aware, the Kabbalah uh, included spells designed to induce an unseen population of spirits to carry out a magician's wishes. Astrology, numerology, ceremonial magic, all these things are actually based on the Kabbalah. And it was Swedenborg's works that helped to lay the groundwork for renewed interest in the occult practice of astrology back in the 1800s. Since Swedenborg was involved in the occult, it's not surprising to learn that he did not accept the fundamentals of the Christian faith. He taught that God's love extended to include Satan, and then he goes on to, he goes so far as to say that the dragon in Revelation actually refers to those who believe in faith alone and reject the works of the law as not conducive to salvation. So in other words, He's telling that those who believe in salvation by faith alone, uh, is, they're considered to be of the devil. <laughs> that this is the uh, mindset or the warped mind, you might say, of someone of this mm-hmm. caliber. He believed that Adam and Eve were symbols, that the flood was just an allegory, heaven and hell are not localities. He believes that the um, spirits of the dead are floating around in space and so on. And his writings actually influenced Christian science, another occult group. Um, Grant Snar, he's a Swedenborgian, and I think this is an interesting quote from him. He he mentions this, I'll give a quote. He said, I grew up with the teachings of Swedenborg, but when I became involved in 12-step groups back in 1984, I was dumbfounded to see the similarities between the 12-step program and Swedenborg's teachings. Mm-hmm. I kept asking people if there is a connection but they insisted that there is no connection with any religion. It was later that my colleague Michael Cowley, who worked with me on the concept of a course based on this philosophy, did some homework and found out that there is a connection. From my Swedenborgian perspective, I was very glad to see how to use these steps, which are basically the same steps Swedenborg shared with us about rebirth, or of course reincarnation, Swedenborg explains, for example, why we are powerless by ourselves, 
why we need a higher power, why an inventory or what he calls self-examination is important and what it does for us and why we must reconnect with the world as well as the spirit, unquote. Now, the connection is even deeper because, you see, Bill's wife, um, Lois Burnham, her grandfather was actually a minister in the Swedenborgian church, and that church is also known as New Church or Church of the New Jerusalem. Bill knew of the Burnham's interest in this occult group, and so he and Lois vowed to someday explore it more deeply. In fact, the Wilsons, or Lois and Bill, were actually married in the Swedenborgian church in Brooklyn, New York. So it really is no wonder to see some of Swedenborgian ideas being carried over into AA. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people would not look at the beliefs of Swedenborg and, and his church and say, well, it's just another type of Protestantism or it's just another shade mm-hmm. of church. It's a no. drastically different, it's a cult. It basically has all the hallmarks of a cult. It, it, it would be a, a template over theosophy, for example, be very much in line with that. And they have, they clearly align themselves with this. And, and by the way, listeners, we are only hitting the top level surface of these issues mm-hmm. page after page of this book is chock full with much more in-depth information than what we're covering and endless quotations from people showing not just one or two instances of these relationships but overwhelming evidence of these relationships so i really suggest our listeners if you're having if you're a little overwhelmed by some of this you need to get the book to be able to digest the hard data that comes from numerous redundant resources about this information um, now, one of the things you talk about that they use that have been outgrowths of the AA technique in their meetings uh, are, are things like sensitivity training and group morality that come out of this where everyone sets their own beliefs about right or wrong outside the room. You don't bring in any of your religious moral convictions or things like that when you meet. Uh, you set that out in the group, sort of works out them th- their things on their own. How are these things, as expressed in AA and other psychotherapy today, lead to personal and societal changes today? How do you think that's had an impact on where we are in the world today? Well, the Oxford group was known for its group confession, and of course this group confession is used in humanistic sensitivity training. The National Education Association founded the National Training Laboratories, and in their manual for group leaders, they said that sensitivity training is actually brainwashing. I'm giving a little background here before mm-hmm. I go further. Sure. Okay. We find that this group confession is also used in the sensitivity training from the humanistic perspective. And, of course, it is really gaining a foothold in the United States because uh, there's so many individuals now that are supposedly have to go through sensitivity training so they can supposedly understand their prejudices and so that they're more sensitive to others. Like, for instance, a workplace may put their employees through sensitivity training when the employer wishes for his employees to accept gays and lesbians or a medical facility may require that its employees go through sensitivity training in order to accept abortion, etc. But what most people, again, do not realize is that this is the very same sensitivity training that was used by Mao Zedong in his Marxist-Leninist weapon in the Communist Party. And this is how they could do this so much, yeah. You know, because what's happening is they break you down to such a point. In fact, there was one 
woman, an, an elderly woman, and, you know, she was very, um, you could call her a prude. I wouldn't. I think it's just good Christian behavior. Of course, she probably wasn't. Right. But, <laughs> but, you know, she, she didn't want to use any bad language or anything. But after being bombarded day after day for about a week amongst these people, you know, in the sensitivity training, by the end of the period that she took this course, she's there leaving out all kinds of four-letter words and all with no inhibition. It breaks you down to accept, and this is what you're asking, about those morals. Mm -hmm. Because um, when you're bombarded with this idea day after day, you eventually give in, or you all of a sudden you see the gay work in the side. If he really is a nice fella, uh, he, he is nice to his mother or, or whatever, he's polite. And, well, you know, all of a sudden, well, well maybe, maybe homosexuality is not quite so bad as... You know, we've been taught it is. Or, you know, it's just to break it down. And actually what they're using is more or less like the Pavlovian theory with the conditioned reflexes. And what's interesting, they said that this here idea can only succeed in an atmosphere where fixed moral absolutes have yeah. been eliminated. And this is the point. We have to get rid of the fixed moral absolutes. And where this actually ties into AA in their own approved literature again, they say, and here's the quote, there are few absolutes inherent in the 12 steps. Most steps are open to interpretation based on the experience and outlook of the individual, unquote. And that Ernest Kurtz, he was another AA proponent, and he says this, a large part of Bill Wilson's wariness of religion lay in a horror of absolutes. He, he, you know, he just didn't want to be bothered with mm -hmm. absolutes. So when we reject the absolutes, of course, we're going to have a lot of moral problems. If there's no absolutes, then anything goes. Uh, you can justify cheating, lying, adultery, anything, really, without a basis. And this is why it's so important that we have that foundation of God's Word, because we we don't want to be tossed to and fro, carried around with every right. word of doctrine. We need some absolutes. But this is part of the foundation, and the sensitivity training that's used often breaks down these moral absolutes. You, you know, I really didn't sort of see this kind of message coming from the book. I didn't anticipate it until I got into it, and it got me thinking of the fact that one might hear some disturbing things on this show about AA and think, well, I'm just going to stay away from it, warn others. It won't influence me. Unfortunately, it has influenced society in other aspects of psychoanalysis and training. I would I would surmise that probably a lot of people who are psychologists today have probably been through AA themselves and have mm -hmm. probably had it influence themselves from their own experiences. So uh, AA comes to you. It comes to you if you're in a large corporate workplace that has this kind of training. And what it creates is a moral relativism uh, based upon a mob morality. Uh, it's a it's a very pragmatic view of whatever works for the group at the time, and that's why the, the, the thing I kept hearing over and over again from people who'd been to these meetings uh, in your book and other experiences is that you had people who were just acting filthy, filthy, nasty all the time, but because they were trying to address alcoholism, it felt like that gave them license to do whatever else they chose uh, and didn't realize that you know, they called themselves drunks and, you know, really people with problems, all sorts of issues, but they didn't realize their issues went beyond holding that glass of alcohol in their hand. That there there were other moral issues, character issues there, that uh, were swept under the rug 
and and now we've we've got this whole thing in our society and our training and you know kids in public schools they have things now even before I graduated from school I went to a Christian school when I entered junior high but up to that point they began doing less and less of the three R's and more and more of this kind of sensitivity training other kind of things where having an outside independent source uh, or you know, re- relevatory source of information on what's right and wrong was was really frowned upon. Uh, it was based upon whatever the consensus was of the people there, and that's where I see the big impact of this. Mm. Uh, well, this is it. They're trying to make that consensus. You know, how many here believe that, you know, it's wrong to lie? <laughs> you know, the majority doesn't make it right. Most right. of them will probably say it's okay, at least in this situation, your situation ethics. Mm-hmm. We can do it here. And normally I would not steal, but because, and then you justify that type of behavior. But the thing is, it, consensus will never make it. But it, they are doing this. You know, well, if 99% of your classmates or your employees around you believe that something's right and you're the only oddball, you're either forced to agree or, you know, you're really sticking out like a sore thumb. Mm-hmm. And that was the culture they created. What were you going to say, Tom? I, I just find it so interesting that once again we see uh, the natural outgrowth of something I, I sort of noticed, gosh, almost ten years ago, uh, that as we see this lifting of moral and philosophical and logical absolutes, uh, we all tend to more and more sort of wander around in the dark you know, with our hands out, just bumping into stuff. And it going, descends oh. to the lowest level, whatever the lowest level yeah. is of anybody. It's like the weakest link. Yeah. Morality, that's what it all descends mm-hmm. to in culture. Yeah, and and it's kind of scary because it seems like in a lot of cases, when you, just when you think it's gotten lower, it turns out everybody involved brought shovels, and they're digging deeper. Well, and, and one reason why this is tied back to AAA, and even further to that, to the Oxford group, uh, didn't Frank Buckman, the founder of the Oxford Group, and, and other leaders in AA have known sexual peccadillos or other indiscretions as well? Wasn't that well known? Well, Frank Buckman, as you mentioned, the leader of the Oxford Group or the founder, he had worked at Hartford Seminary. And in spite of being, he was 38 years old at this point, but he insisted on living in the boys' dorm. And he had this tendency to harp on sexual sins, which sometimes I've noticed homosexuals especially those with mm-hmm. a religious background, will sort of preach like um, Jimmy Flaggart. Sure, Ones sure. like this, you know, at the prostitute or whatever. You know, they, they make it like it's really, really wrong. Um, several of these others have come out more recently in the news, too, some of the Republican leaders and all. They supposedly are family people outside, but they have these sexual tendencies inside. But anyway, um, Buckman just had this tendency to harp on these sexual sins, and the boys were complaining about it, and they, they called it intrusive methods. Now, we don't know fully what that meant, mm-hmm. but here's a 38-year-old man with a bunch of boys. And he, when he was at Princeton, he was asked to leave in part because of sexual indiscretions. Mm-hmm. And one person said about Buckman, he says, he started asking me intimate questions about sex before I'd been alone with him for five minutes. I left in a hurry. Uh, when Buckman would try to convert people, he, they said he would listen tirelessly to men's confessions, especially those of a sexual nature. He seemed to really, really thrive in that area. And um, one of the sons of Buckman's disciples said that it was well known, it was an open secret among the inner circle that Buckman was a homosexual. So uh, we also see, though, that even with AA, they're very open to those who are homosexual members. In fact, um, there are special AA groups at times that will put the words gay slash lesbian behind their mm-hmm. AA, that these are meetings for that. They're very open mm-hmm. to this kind of thing. But Bill Wilson, 
he he was known for hitting on women there at the meetings, right? And, oh, he and was it, a womanizer. He, yeah. he he had part of the proceeds from the Twelve Steps book went to his mistress, correct? Yes, that's right. So his wife had to share the proceeds from it along with his acknowledged mistress that mm-hmm. everybody knew that, she, that that he had. So he, he's trying to focus on getting rid of alcoholism to the exclusion of addressing any other character issues in his life, and he didn't want them brought up in AA either for anybody else. Right. And and so that culture, from, from what I read in your book and from other things I've seen, is a culture that's pretty much let to go rampant in AA. If if you want to go swap around members and sex and this kind of thing and do whatever, you know, and their argument would say, hey, we're here just for for alcohol issue, you know, we can't tell you what else to do. But it, it, as we know, and we'll get into this, this is really a character and a spiritual issue, and you cannot promote other sins in trying to address another sin. No, you can't. And then see with the AA too, you go in there and all you basically do over and over and over is you're rehashing all your hurts in your past and you're sort of blaming everybody else. I mean, it was the alcohol that did it. You weren't responsible. It's your parents that caused you to act this way. You weren't responsible. And you just feel like you're just fine. Why does everybody pick on poor you? You know, you're... They don't, maybe they're jealous of you or something. And it just gives you this idea like, I'm okay, everybody else is wrong. And no matter what you do, well, I'm doing this because I'm forced to, or my background, or my, you know, husband's causing me to go out like this. And if he treat me differently, I wouldn't be running around with this other guy from the AA group or whatever. It gives a, a license for sin of sorts. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future. And Tom, uh, no fan of Sweden, Borgen, Bionic. Swedenborgianism? Yeah. It's yeah. crazy stuff, man. I looked into that a couple of years ago. Are you going to publish a book of the things you're not a fan of? I think you'd need to make a I would just direct people to the beginnings list. and endings of our show. But, okay. Uh, no. You know, one of the things about this show that I'm also not a fan of is a group sensitivity training. Uh, I guess I'm not surprised. That, that doesn't sound like a big deal. When people hear it's like, oh, so what? Let's get back to well, the hardcore stuff. Well, no, like, I'm not a fan of it because stuff. it's actually brainwashing. And it's real. Know? And it's yeah. real, and it affects the rest of our society, even if you're not in AA. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a moral relativism that's created. AA creates a culture, and they've actually taken this and translated it into teaching in corporate environments and settings mm-hmm. and psychotherapy and stuff like that. Everything's interconnected. Everything has these kind of connections together. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, I worked with a Swedenborgian. Really? And I didn't know much about it until I studied it. And I mean, that guy did astral projection. He he did it all back in the 1700s. Oh, man, yeah, he was all into that stuff. He just loved it. And and some of the guys who've been in the occult world since then, actually, when they do their astral projection, they go see Swedenborg. Wow. So he's sort of, you know, part of their mindset, you know. Uh, but isn't it interesting how guys like Aldous Huxley and this Gerald uh, Hurd and these other people mm-hmm. find their They're connection? All, all same, same cast and crew yeah. characters. Yep, and as uh, and as uh, Chris Pinto would tell us, there's a Jesuit in there somewhere. Yep, let's all, I'll go blast some nightshade oh. and see the Jesuits. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Well, uh, someone else we can see is Merv, who could come in and tell you how to contact us at Future Quake. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. 
comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Well, we're coming up to the end here. Any last comments you have about what yeah. we've discussed? Well, uh, also interesting, I, I find again and again, is that how Bill Moore, uh, Bill Wilson abhorred absolutes. That mm-hmm. seems to be like an epidemic, really. It's not just Bill Wilson. And anything of what was like really Christianity. Yeah. He didn't like anything that was the classic Christian teaching. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, Christian, as they say. That's why they have it in churches. You know? I've never heard anybody say that yeah. AA is Christian, is it? Is that what it's sold? Well, come back tomorrow. Uh, We'll discuss it further. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake. Quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I am Tom Bionic. Um, no middle name? No middle name today. Feel First, cheated. Yeah, sorry, man. Well, something that you won't feel cheated about is our guest this week. Uh, we're getting ready to have our third installment of our interview this week with Dr. Kathy Burns, who is the author of numerous books, including the, our subject this week, uh, her book, Alcoholics Anonymous Unmasked, Deception and Deliverance. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about the occult foundations and mission of Alcoholics Anonymous. And we have had a ton of surprises, and we're not done yet, are we, this week? No. We it's have so, got a full pack of information this week. Yeah, I We're know. talking on this. It's hard to, it's hard to, I feel, maybe it's just because it's just, I'm so used to it. I'm just sort of like numb, but it is, it is great information. You know? Mm-hmm. I wasn't surprised to see any of it, but it is great information. But it shows that we have yet another institution in society that impacts millions of people. That is not what it appears, and not what it's sold to, say, to be. To say the least. Once you do a little bit of research on it, mm-hmm. and it goes to show us that there are many, many other institutions that we need to take a second look at. Mm-hmm. Same way. Yeah. So, Okay, uh, let's go on to our third segment with Dr. Kathy Burns, and then we'll be right back to wrap it up here at Future Quick. The next question concerns a topic that um, you, you address a good bit of your book, too, and it's fascinating the depth of information you have. Uh, how does the following the AA 12 steps lead to new age pursuits and interest? Well, the 12th step of AA states that a spiritual awakening occurs when these 12 steps are followed. So since this step tells us that there's a spiritual awakening, by following the 12 steps, we sort of can see that the plan of salvation is being ignored and disregarded because it's giving you more of a works-based salvation than a salvation by faith because you're working these steps to obtain this experience. And then in AA Al-Anon, which would be for the um, adult children of alcoholics and those like partners and different things, they're all basically AA groups. They're branch-offs. But all these different 12-step programs have really bought into this um, New Age doctrine of the higher self and integration psychosynthesis, which was, you know, um, basically from Carl Jung's theories. And in this one book, it's entitled... um, Guide to Recovery, it was written by Herbert Gravitz and Julie Bowden, and they said that Genesis, or rebirth, is a spiritual awakening spoken of in Alcoholics Anonymous. You begin to be aware of the spiritual connection which unites us all in a sense of being one with the universe. Again, you get that New Age flavor. We're all one. We're all the same. Another book published by the um, Al-Anon headquarters is titled Living with an Alcoholic. And in there they claim 
the spiritual awakening can come to us whether or not we are oriented to a particular religious faith. So we see this spiritual awakening has nothing to do with Christianity, has nothing to do with the Bible. Yet another book um, by Jessica Fleming, she said, I have spent 20 years in the New Age and four years in ACOA, that's the Adult Children of Alcoholics. And she says, I see no difference fundamentally. Uh, There's even a channel book that tells the reader how to contact spirit guides and all. And they tell us, they in that book, they say you should get the books 12 Steps and 12 Traditions, which was written by Alcoholics Anonymous. And hopefully we'll get into that a little later. Mm-hmm. And then another person wrote this, quote, In AA, I heard expounded, she was a former member, but she said, In AA, I heard expounded the glories of EST training, New Age massage, hypnosis, and pagan meditation. I heard a woman say that her higher power was a doorknob and a man who prayed to the crack in the ceiling with no critical judgment from members who were present. I heard in depth about the positive value of vasectomies, tubal litigations, and divorce, unquote. So what really is meant by their spiritual awakening? Well, I'll give you somebody who was, again, an, another AA proponent, was Mel Beatty. And she tells how that when she was in a treatment center for drug abuse, she was still able to obtain this marijuana cigarette. So she went outside and she began to smoke the joint. And she said all of a sudden, for the first time in her life, she felt the presence of God. And then she explains this. She said, quote, that was my spiritual awakening. It transformed me. It transformed my life. This was a tremendous awakening of my soul and spirit. It was a transformational experience, unquote. So in other words, here she is calling her spiritual awakening. It occurred to her to smoking a marijuana cigarette. So when people hear these phrases and say that, you know, the 12 steps given spiritual awakening and all, we really need to see from their own literature what AA is defining this for us as. Right. You know, we're thinking, oh, spiritual, oh, means God, means church. Uh, it probably even includes Jesus. But if you go to AA's literature, we obviously find out it does not mean that at all. And sadly, B's book, Promoting the um, Spiritual Awakening Through a um, Marijuana Cigarette, is even promoted by some of our famous so-called Christian psychologists. Mm. In one of the books, you know, this is recommended reading. Mm. Uh, the church world has gone so, so far, and we really right. need to get back to the scriptures. Well, uh, amen to that. And... Mm. Um, people really need to get your book because there's so much depth in these materials, overwhelming, that anyone who was really sold on the AA and tries to maintain any kind of uh, acceptance or uh, connection to Christianity needs to see the major disconnect here because um, what you show from quotations from other hardcore New Age teachers, the top New Age teachers, is they are very excited to recommend AA almost as a recruitment tool for their activities, mm-hmm. that they see it as a doorway to get them to get one into New Age activities because it really does prepare someone uh, spiritually uh, and get their thinking in the right line uh, of, of real open-mindedness of defining God within you, uh, God in very, very abstract sense. Uh, it's really a focus on yourself. It's a self-centered activity to what your needs are. Uh, your development and growth. It's a non-judgmental environment where there aren't absolutes of what right and wrong are. And they're thrilled with this. 
And uh, I did not realize that until I reviewed your material. I uh, didn't know that much about AA. I'd heard some positive things. How clear-cut it is for anyone to see that it really is a doorway and a portal to, to New Age activities. Um, related to that, um, there's always this talk. It's probably one of the most famous things known about in the AA 12 Steps is about this higher power. Uh, and uh, this, you know, choosing a higher power of your own choosing that you're accountable to to get off the bottle. What is the definition of and the actual practice of recognizing a higher power in AA groups? Well, AA obviously recommends, and it's in several of their steps, a God as you understand him. And some of the other groups will even say, as you understand him or her or it, which takes an even a feminine aspect or a neuter aspect of God. So even by that alone, you can tell that this is not the male God taught in Christianity. But um, now you're talking again that these other groups really like AA. So there's an article that appeared in the Yoga Journal, and they say this. They say, quote, your higher power may be God. Mine may be the big silence. Somebody else's may be the original self or Brahman or the divine within. Although the word God is used in a number of the 12 steps and regularly in Al-Anon literature, Al-Anon members much more frequently say higher power. It's a way of showing respect for each person's particular spiritual understanding. Unquote. Terrence Gorski is a big AA promoter, and he says this, quote, you can select God as your higher power, but many members, especially new members, do not. They use their 12-step group as their initial higher power. The group meets all of the criteria. He then adds this, some people claim that a higher power can be anything, even an inanimate object. I know many people who believe it is better to make an empty bottle your higher power than it is to have no higher power at all, unquote. Other um, approved um, AA literature calls these um, higher powers or whatever is a group of drunks, that's G-O-D for God, the group itself, good, it, doorknob, tree, stone, Ralph, Santa Claus. I mean, it doesn't matter what you call it. It's your higher power. Now, this this now, this makes a mockery of this whole idea of having a separate personality of God, ha- have, having an entity that we're accountable to, uh, rather than I guess they call it monism, where we're all God. What what this what this says is is that I'm so powerful. I could name myself God or something else or whatever, but I can do it. And and isn't this idea of making a God or higher power of your own choosing really just a form of idolatry? Is there really a difference in that and just cutting one out of a block of wood or coming up with something else that you choose and you make yourself to bow to? Well, it is idolatry because you're you're giving credence to something other than to the true God yourself. Uh, there's an article in one journal that says the higher power, like spirituality, is a generic but highly personalized concept that bypasses all the biases and defenses alcoholics may have concerning God and religion. A higher power is simply anything or anybody that guides, directs, motivates, controls, and gives meaning and purpose to your life. Now, I can't understand how a doorknob or a bottle can give purpose mm-hmm. to the life, but they said with a broad definition in mind, the alcoholic cannot not but have a higher power. But you see, the Bible 
doesn't teach some vague, um, wishy-washy, nebulous concept of God. Uh, in fact, when the Apostle Paul was in Athens and he noticed that the city was full of idolatry and they were very superstitious, and when he passed by, he, he, saw, he saw this inscription that says, To the unknown God. This sounds very much like what's in AA. They don't know that a lot of them are agnostics or not knowing. They don't know what their worshiping. Anything will suit. And, of course, this Athenian God is basically a God as you understand him. They didn't know what this God was. But um, when we make up our own concept of God, we're limiting God to our abilities. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, any God that we make is obviously much smaller than we are. We could not have created it. Exactly. To me, it just shows connections to the human potential movement or new thought movement where... We are so empowered that all we have to do is name something and visualize it, and it comes into existence, which is an attribute that I thought was was God's alone uh, that created the universe. But they believe what, what we envision, what we think on, will come to pass, including making your own deity. And this is why I think it fits so easily into New Age movement and how someone who was led into creating their own deity is actually farther from God than someone who is a blank slate that needs to hear the gospel. You've actually mm-hmm. thrown an additional stumbling block in their path to Christ. Well, right, because if we are God, why would I need God? Mm-hmm. I'm it. <laughs> I'm the one. I'm the one that can create my own reality or whatever. I don't need an outside source. Mm-hmm. But if we realize that God is far greater than we are and we need somebody else, then we do have an access to him. But the Bible tells us that he that cometh to God must believe that he is. Right. Uh, and unless we can believe that far, we're not going to be able to even come to God and be saved. And we, in fact, we can't. Right, we can't make anything on our terms with God. We can't come forward to Him and define or or bargain, plea bargain. We can't decide any of the terms on how we come to God. God says this is the way it is. And in fact, none of our good works will make it. It's only the atoning death of Jesus Christ would we have any means by which uh, to to boldly approach the throne of grace and, and to meet His favor. And so uh, that's why I see this as just such a damaging thing from a spiritual standpoint, even though people say this is just a, a term of convenience and accountability. Um, well, let me ask you about uh, this, the 12 steps teaching. Um, who, uh, human or otherwise, helped Bill Wilson write his 12-step teaching according to his own admission? Well, uh, in the official biography by AA, it says, Quote, as he started to write, he asked for guidance. I'm going to stop here because if you remember back there at the house parties and the quiet times and all, they would write and they'd have their periods of guidance. And that's when these um, spirit guides or outside sources would come in and take over their hands and do basically automatic writing and all. So it says he asked for guidance and he relaxed. Again, this gives you that um, meditation format or whatever that's known in the New Age. It says, the words began tumbling out with astonishing speed. He completed the first draft in about half an hour, then kept on writing until he felt he should stop and review what he had written. Numbering the new steps, he found that they added up to 12, a symbolic number, he thought. Numbering, Mm. um, he thought of the 12 apostles, isn't that sweet? (laughs) I mean, he really thought of the scriptures, right? But it's not a religion, but yeah, he's using spiritual tools. Yeah, and soon became convinced that the society should have 12 steps at the end of the quote. But basically, it tells us here that he was in this relaxed state. He picked up the pen at almost 
wrote itself the way it appears. Uh, he was very much in a, a trance state the way it appears. It's evidently written through um, automatic writing, or which Christians, again, would know as demons coming through to these people. Now, now so, he actually said he, 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 I thought he received this from like a 15th century monk. Aren't there, aren't there quotations from him of that? Uh, some of the spirit guides would come through on him. He had different ones coming through, introducing yeah. themselves as different people. Okay. So, yeah. So yeah, I'm not really sure. That was one I on read. That issue. Yeah. I read it, it that from be. a quote from one of his biographies that that he explained that a 15th century monk, because uh, he believed in reincarnation. That was one of the things mm-hmm. that he said he believed in was that this monk actually wrote through him this. But there again, it's your automatic writing or your demon appearing, yeah. And this is the same information that people will claim has no kind of conflict with Christianity uh, whatsoever. Um, Speaking of this whole religion thing, you know, everybody always says AA is sort of like Freemasonry. You know, they claim they're not a religion. Um, They're there just to sort of assist religious bodies and, and their role in people's lives and, you know, off to the side. But what evidence can you point to to suggest that AA teaching is, in fact, a religion in and of itself? Well, like you said, they deny it's a religion. But at the same time that they claim they're not a religious society, they say that they do not. The reason why they say that is because they say, well, we don't have any definite religious beliefs as a condition for membership. But at the same time, they brag that their program is a spiritual program. And again, going to their own materials, they said, so we of AA do obey spiritual principles. The same book also says, AA can and will survive as long as it remains a spiritual faith and a way of life open to all men and women who suffer from alcoholism. Yet another quote, it says, in AA, practically no full recovery from alcoholism has been possible without this all-important faith. Uh, the Society of Alcoholics Anonymous is spiritually as well as morally centered, they said. Yet another book is uh, put out again by the AA, and it's called The Clergyman Asked About Alcoholics Anonymous. And in this book, we're told the AA program of recovery from alcoholism is undeniably based on acceptance of certain spiritual values. And it says the spiritual perception of most members deepens the longer they are in AA and try to follow the 12 steps. Uh, another person, Dennis Holly, said regardless of their religion or whether they are atheists or agnostic, AA members develop a spiritual dimension to their lives. AA members strongly believe that spirituality is the key to life. And Bill Wilson himself said, we stress the spiritual simply because thousands of us have found that we cannot do without it. Now, what I think is interesting is, too, they brag that they are a spiritual fellowship. Now, the word fellowship comes from the Greek coin, um, koinia, mm-hmm. and it means an intense love there or whatever. And Ephesians 5.11 tells us that we are to have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but we are to reprove them. And I believe that's what these programs are doing tonight. We do not want to have that fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, and we are calling out and warning what actually is being involved in their fellowship. Yes, AA is religious. They cannot deny it if they want, but when you're talking Shiva or Allah or the higher power or whatever, there is still a form of a being out there. 
that they are worshiping. And right. that obviously causes a problem for a Christian. Yeah, exactly, exactly right. I mean, like you said, you've got all these quotations in your book that are that are people need to have. You know, here it is. It says that AA can and will survive so long as it remains a spiritual faith. Now, that's pretty clear to me. And the fact that it says we are not Christianity tells two alarm two alarms one in my head. One, it is a spiritual faith, and it distinguishes itself from it. So where are you going to fall? Are you going to fall? It's it said either or. You're going to fall with Christianity, or you're going to fall with what they teach uh, at this time. Now you mentioned someone else, Carl Jung, and uh, Emmett Fox is also another person who had a huge impact uh, on the founder. Uh, in fact, even attributed as being sort of founders of AA philosophy. Can you give us a few quick little facts about them and the significance of them, and, and, and why it causes even further concern? Well, Emmett Fox, was, um, Emmett Fox is considered to be a godparent of Alcoholics Anonymous. He was a theologian and a religious le- lecturer in the 1930s and the 40s, and his work served as the basic text for the recovering alcoholics before there was any official AA literature. So that's very important. This was their foundation, was Fox's writings. Uh, in fact, Dr. Bob Smith, who was one of the founders of AA, he said that Fox's book, Sermon on the Mount, was required reading for the early AA members. Now, since this is required reading, what does Fox believe? It's important to know this. Fox has been, um, he was reared as a Catholic, but he was drawn to new thought. Of course, that's your occult thing. He was one of its main supporters. And, of course, the new thought is a belief that teaches that we're all divine, which we're talking about before. We are gods. God is infinite intelligence and an impersonal force. Of course, he says there's no sin, there's no evil, there's no Satan. Uh, some new thought proponents even believe in reincarnation. And Fox, again, the, this is deception behind these groups. Fox would use Christian terminology, but he would redefine it to mean something else. For instance, he'd talk about God the Father, and again, a Christian says, oh, they're a Christian. But then he'd interpret it to mean the fatherhood of God referring, refers to a feeling of security in the universe. It's not the same thing as it sounds. Mm-hmm. So this, this was Fox. And the other one, of course, was the other godparent that's considered in here for AA is Carl Jung. And what had actually happened here, there was a man by the name of Roland Hazard. He was a former state senator, and he was also the alcoholic. And he ended up as one of Carl Jung's patients. And he he was always, you know, trying to get help, but then no time at all, he'd be back out and drunk again. And he came back, came back to Young Jung, and Jung at one point just said, I'm sorry, that there's just nothing more I can do. And he says, well, hasn't anyone ever gotten debtor from this? And Jung says, well, sometimes if you get a religious experience, it will help. Well, he went out from Jung, joined up with the Oxford group. Then he went and he talked to a man by the name of Eppie Thatcher. Eppie Thatcher was the man who supposedly brought the message to Bill Wilson, especially when mm-hmm. we talked about there in Towns Hospital. He came into Towns Hospital and gave the message to um, Bill. So here's the um, correlation, Carl Jung to Roland Hazard to Ebby Thatcher to Bill Wilson, very close. And, of course, we need to know again, who's Jung? Well, he was an occultist who hated Christianity, but he would recommend the, the Oxford group. So we have to wonder, oh, what's different about the Oxford group? If It can't be Christianity if he hates it if, and if he recommends mm-hmm. it. So that should tell us that it's not a Christian group. 
Pang Yung himself had severe bouts of depression. He had hallucinations, and he tried to control that by doing yoga. He had many spirit guides. One was this white-bearded old man who identified himself as Elijah. He also had a young girl come through that was Salome, and Philemon was an, appeared mm-hmm. as an old man. I mean, he mm-hmm. just had all these different um, spirit guides. Again, we're back into all this occult connection. And, he, and he's really the coal pillar of modern psychiatry, is he not, alongside oh, with Sigmund yeah. Freud? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. he, he, that's, that's one of his biggest ways he impacts our society, uh, is this whole idea of archetypes and hidden uh, consciousness that goes back through our civilization, through multi-generations. And that's part of the foundation of modern psychiatry and psychology treatment. But he was just an out-and-out occultist, basically. Oh, yeah. I mean, he was a full-blown occult practitioner. He was. He believed in reincarnation. He wrote a foreword to um, a New Ager's book called Introduction to Zen Buddhism. He had his own book, Seven Sermons to the Dead, and that appears to have been done through automatic writing. He practiced necromancy, which is actually communication with the dead. And again, it's a uh, practice written by the scriptures. When he would take on a new client or a new patient, every one of his patients had an astrological chart drawn up. Of course, that's always been, you know, part of the occult and witchcraft. Now, considering um, Bill Wilson's interest in psychic phenomena and knowing about Jung's connection, I think it's extremely interesting to see a letter that he actually wrote to Carl Jung. And here's what he said. He wrote this letter in 1961, and here's his quote. Very thoughtful AAs are students of your writings. You will also be interested to learn that in addition to the spiritual experience, many AAs report a great variety of psychic phenomena, the cumulative weight of which is very considerable. Other members have, following their recovery in AA, been much helped by your practitioners. A few have been intrigued by the I Ching. That's an occult book, Mm -hmm. I Ching, a book of divination. Okay. They've been intrigued by the I Ching and your remarkable introduction to that work. Please be certain that your place in the affection and in the history of our fellowship, and you know that word, our fellowship, is like no other, unquote. Now, these are Bill's own words in a letter to Dr. Jung saying about his importance and how the occult was falling from him to AA. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think this becomes a slam dunk uh, as far as uh, showing so many connections. And again, you're just scratching the surface of what you actually address in your book as uh, the, the, the connections. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future. And Tom, crazy like a fox, but not Emmett Fox. Bionic. Thank goodness. Or the <laughs> is it the Fox, Fox Sisters? Family? Yeah, Fox, Fox I mean, Sisters in yeah. Hi, is it Hydesville, New York? Yeah, it was somewhere up there in the sticks. Yeah, began spiritualism. Yeah. Well, uh, covered a whole lot of more material on this segment of the interview mm-hmm. with Doctor with uh, Doctor Burns, who by the way had a throat problem and mm-hmm. did she a Herculean Herculean it, effort like to stick through there. Special forces. Mm-hmm. What, what do you think? Did you learn anything new about the 12 Steps and about their con- direct connection to New Age? Well, we don't have any religious affiliation, but we are spiritual. We we are a, s- a spiritual group and a spiritual yeah. guide. Yeah, and, I've uh, been I've been looking into them of late, and this was a very interesting connection to some of the stuff that I found, and you know mm-hmm. some of the stuff they expound. The New Agers consider them just an extension of themselves. Yes. When they write about them, they say, "Yeah, this is the same teaching we a teach." God, as you understand Him, this is the same it thing. Could be a doorknob, self-defined, crack in the ceiling. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. right, and that's what they do. They talk about that. Mm-hmm. They'll, they'll talk about how they can make it's almost a joke 
when basically that's just a disguised attempt to say we're God. Mm-hmm. A little bit more sophisticated. If you can make perhaps, your own. If you can make your own. For convenience, project it. Take your force projected on something else to be answerable to. Yeah. Whatever gets you through it. But there's no absolute truth or absolute accountability. In fact, I don't even know. I, mean, I guess they make that a form of accountability to that God or to each other. Mm-hmm. To but the there's not ultimate objective accountability in the universe. Well, like a separate personality yeah, God. Truly. I have a ton of stuff I want to bring up, but we don't have time. Okay. Well, we do have time for Merv, who can tell you how to contact us at FutureQuake. FutureQuake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. We do have to go. All right, let's get it. Come back for our last segment tomorrow. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Sayonara. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. Quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And Tom digging into the occult origins of AA Bionic. Ah, yes. And that's because we have Dr. Kathy Burns, who is the author of Alcoholics Anonymous Unmasked, uh, deception and deliverance, and we're mm-hmm. talking about the occult foundations and mission of Alcoholics Anonymous. We've had a lot of surprises this week. This is our last segment, so here's our last segment with Dr. Kathy Burns, and we'll be back to wrap it up here at Future Quick. There, there's one more that I want to cover here, um, and that is, uh, and this is just one example uh, of something called, I believe, the Emmanuel Emmanuel Movement. Uh, maybe you could explain explain what that is but but the people who wrote books out of this AA culture uh, in the subject of religion did, did, did they see their their inspired writings the ones that actually influenced the AA culture and back and forth did they see them as actually superior to the Bible itself well with the Emmanuel group when Bill Wilson was in the hospital back there in towns uh, his friend Evie Thatcher who I just mentioned with Jung he brought in William James's book called varieties of religious experience and in that book, James talks a lot about the different ways to God. In other words, there's many ways to God, which, again, we know from the scriptures is not true. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And in this book from James, he mentions this um, Emmanuel group and so on. And what they did, they, they again, stresses the power of the mind over the body or, you know, the mind power, the thought power there. And... In there, they they had confession as well, like the other groups, like on the Oxford and the Alcoholics Anonymous, and they would confess to each other. But again, the scriptures tells us we only confess to God. There is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And if we confess our sins to God, he'll forgive us. We can't confess to a group and be forgiven. Uh, part also of the Emmanuel Movement's program was a suggestion that one would obtain this relaxed state and then they would use like hypnosis and auto-suggestion. And again, we're getting back into all the occult stuff. And of course, like with the, um, they said that hypnotism as recently as just two centuries ago was the exclusive 
property, of which doctors, Greek oracles, Persian magi, and Hindu fakers. So this, again, is the um, thing behind the Emmanuel group. Now, uh, as far as going into the Bible being superior, um, other writings being superior, in the Oxford group, when they would have these um, seances, basically, is what they were, when the spirit guides would come in, one of the books written there was by an A.J. Russell for Sinners Only. And um, one woman from the group had read this, and she thought, boy, I'd like to do what he's doing, but she wasn't really getting much response, so she mm-hmm. got another friend to do this with her. And she said there, she said, we felt all unworthy and overwhelmed by the wonder of it and could hardly realize that we were being taught, trained, and encouraged day by day by him, meaning God, their God, by him personally, when millions of souls far worthier had to be content with guidance from the Bible, sermons, their churches, books, and other sources. So yes, they were putting their writings really above the scriptures. I mean, we have to be content with something dry and almost musty and moldy. They were getting fresh information day by day through their spirit contact. And then they went on and said, there's no inspired book. Well, that leaves the Bible out, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. So yes, they thought their writings were better. This mindset was really came from the early days of even the Oxford group where they put such an emphasis on personal experiences and insights that God gave when he moved your hand to write something, when you close your eyes, empty your mind, move your hand, which became to them sometimes like their Bible from some of the quotes that I saw, uh, where, where it, it, it became a, a more superior thing to the, to the Word of God we have. And, of course, we see echoes of that now today um, in some of the movements in the evangelical community where people's experiences, things they say that God has shown them or whatever, really trump what is taught in, in the Scripture. And so this is something that's been a perpetual battle of uh, religious people, is it not? It is, and we have to be very careful because God's Word is written. It is finished and done. And when we're getting all these extracurricular um mm-hmm speeches coming through from so-called spirits or the Lord or anybody you want to call it out there, Jesus or whatever, and especially if it um, contradicts the scripture, we know it's not from God. Mm -hmm. And this has really been taken over. In fact, this book that I was mentioning here, it was called God Calling because they thought God was actually calling and giving them these messages. And that was on the so-called Christian bestsellers list year after year. It's still selling briskly today. And, and, you know, these are not Christian books. Right. Amen. And, you know, people like William James you mentioned, people need to read more about him and be f- more familiar with him because uh, I did happen to inadvertently get a copy of his book, didn't even know what it was, looked intriguing. And But but his book, the, I think The Rowdy's Religious Experience, I believe it's called, mm-hmm. uh, he is a lot like Manly P. Hall in that his influence is so pervasive across our mm-hmm. entire modern society that, that, that they're a little bit uh, uh, translucent. They're hard to see by the average people, but their thoughts and actions pervade the overwhelming teaching that we hear, whether it's on the Oprah Winfrey show or likely teaches you found on that Course of Miracles, all these other kind of things. These are the people who have really been having their hands on the rudder of society, particularly on spiritual and and uh, you know, uh, moral type uh, issues itself, and people need to do more research on this. Now, if we have not pointed out enough to be of concern already, uh, you were just getting warmed up in your book on this. Um, there are a couple other gentlemen who come to mind who have been mentioned numerous times on this show. 
Uh, how do Harry Fosdick, John Foster Dulles, I assume the same Dulles who was the key figure in the CIA, mm-hmm. and John D. Rockefeller himself have connections to AA? Can you give us a little bit of that? Well, the Rockefellers gave a $50 million endowment to the Riverside Church. Not only was this a very liberal church, but it became notorious as a meeting place of the Communist Party during the 1930s. And this was the time with the Moral Rearmament Oxford Group, you know, NAA, all in that same time frame again. The pastor of this church just happened to be that Harry Emerson Fawcett, and he belonged to at least seven communistic um, front groups. He was a leader in the National Council of Churches, another group we must be very mm-hmm. leery and aware of. Yeah. And what's interesting, too, I think, is the National Council of Churches just happens to be across the street from the Rockefeller Riverside Church, and the two buildings are actually connected by an underground tunnel. So there's a big connection between all of this. It's not just metaphorically underground, the connection. It's even (laughs) physically. It's physically. And Fostick wrote articles for Margaret Sanger's birth control review. The Rockefellers, too, were supporters of the eugenicist Margaret Sanger, who was the founder of Planned Parenthood. So, again, we see this type of connection. Uh, she's the one that came to coin the term, you know, birth control in 1912, and she's known as the mother of birth control. She also founded the Euthanasia mm-hmm. Society in America. Well, anyway, with Vostick, he was the liberal theologian, as we can obviously tell by what I've just said. And he said that Jesus was as much divine as his own mother, and he denied the virgin birth. He said, of course I do not believe in the virgin birth, or in that old-fashioned substitutionary doctrine of the atonement. And I do not know any intelligent Christian minister who does. He wrote a letter in which he said that any preacher who believed in the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus and in the personal return of Jesus to earth to rule and reign was a backwards ignoramus. Uh, When some fundamentalists tried to have Fostick excommunicated because of his views, John Foster Dulles came to his defense. And many people know who he is. Like you mentioned, the CIA there. Uh, he was for those, uh, but for those who don't hear, Dulles was one of the founders of the Council on Foreign Relations, the mm-hmm. CFR, and helped he was, give us MK Ultra and mind control experiments and all that. Mm-hmm. He was also a relative to Rockefeller, to the Rockefeller family, mm-hmm. through marriage to Janet Pomeroy Avery. He served as the chairman on the board of the Rockefeller um, Foundation and the Carnegie Endowment, and it was Dulles himself who actually appointed the communist Alger Hiss to be president of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Now, around 1938, which would be about three years after AA was founded, or the date they give anyway, and some of them were still connected to the Oxford Group by this time, but they were having some um, financial difficulties, so they decided that they were going to try to raise some money. They happened, and this is just a coincidence, they claim, but the connections do not show us a coincidence at all. But they were introduced to Reverend Willard Richardson, who happened to be John D. Rockefeller's spiritual advisor. Rockefeller seemed so impressed with the work of AA, and it's claimed that he actually gave $5,000 back then, you know, and he put it into the Riverside Church for the personal use of Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob Smith. Now, I thought this was, was interesting because I saw some figures there. I thought, oh, I'm going to go check it out and see what happens. Out of this $5,000, they said 3000 immediately went to pay off Dr. Um, Bob Smith's um, home mortgage. So that mm-hmm. left $2,000. And each of the founders were supposed to re- receive $30 a week, making a total of $60, until the money ran out. 
So, I, like I said, I did some figuring. This money would have lasted about eight months. Mm-hmm. But as I'm doing more reading through their books, I'm seeing that in 1942, which is four years later, these men are still receiving their $30 a week. So this money was being replenished mm-hmm. somehow. Right. So Rockefeller is given all this extra money somewhere, plus he went and he had um, promotions. He'd call his friends in and suggest that they also give money to AA. And with him funding all these things, again, why would he fund what would be considered a Christian organization? He wouldn't. And even when AA started their alcoholic foundation, there were three Rockefeller men who sat on the board. And then I thought it was very interesting, and I think this is why there was more connection here than just coincidence, is because Lois was actually, that's Bill Wilson's wife, she was actually distantly related to Rockefeller's wife. Her grandfather's cousin was Laura Spellman, and Laura Spellman married John D. Rockefeller. So we see a connection here between Rockefeller in finances and even in relationships. Mm-hmm. And, and beyond the money that he would give, what he could do was give them instant credibility and PR, instant mm-hmm. press. And, uh, he called, make a few phone calls. He got instant uh, press coverage of what they were doing, instant material. So he was a force multiplier, like they say in the military, mm-hmm. to get other phrase. get other forces uh the public to mm-hmm. be able to get to get his connections in the media and elsewhere to get that aware which would which even be more than his voluminous money uh they could have flowing in but it's so interesting but he but he is definitely connected to that riverside church in Fosdick, correct mm-hmm. oh yes which which uh when you think about it, you know it's almost worse than than having a, a influential man like him be an atheist because here he is actually promoting this this quote, pastor, who teaches something, I mean, denying substitutionary atonement and these fundamental beliefs of the faith, how much damage, for all the damage he did through his monopolies to society, the damage he did through Mr. Fosdick spiritually to the nation would dwarf the economic damage that he did, you know, through his monopoly practices and things like that. We're we're just rounding the end here, and I, I know you're just hanging on with your voice, but I've got two more Quick questions, if you can quickly comment on before before we wrap up here. Um, there's a gentleman you mentioned also that intrigued me, and his name was Ivy Lee. Can you just mention who he is and what role he had in this as well? To give AA publicity, Rockefeller put the AA founders in touch with the firm of Ivy Lee. Like you mentioned, he could call up anybody, anytime, and get the publicity that he wanted. Well, one of those that he used was Ivy Lee. And um, Lee was one of the most prestigious admin of his day, and he was well-known. Um, he had well-known clients such as um, Walter Chrysler, Charles Schwab, George Westinghouse, and Harry Guggenheim. And he um, represented corporations like Standard Oil, American Tobacco, Chase National Bank, General Mills, and so on. And Rockefeller actually sought out Lee to help gloss over his own um, tarnished image. And so these were ones, you know, he, he took this man and put him in touch with AA. We also see that Lee was an inaugural member of the Council on Foreign Relations, the CFR. From 1929, Lee also worked for the U.S. subsidiary of the German corporation of IG Farben. In 1933 to 34, Lee traveled to Germany, and there he met with Adolf Hitler. Here we coming around to all this again. Right. It's the same groups, the same people, right. the same organizations over and over again. And he actually helped, this ideally helped to improve the um, public image of the um, Farben Company. And Lee got, when um, 
John D. Rockefeller died, Lee got um, the uh, job or whatever to brush up his obituary that it looked more um, or better for the public, you know, that they could see a better image of John D. than the original obituary that was written. So I think this is really amazing. Here's the man who helped persuade Rockefeller also, um, he went to Rockefeller and he helped him, pers- or he persuaded him to actually um, put pressure on to repeal the 18th Amendment. And I think this is interesting too because here they're funding both sides. They, right. they repeal prohibition and yet they're promoting the group that supposedly is out there, you know, trying to get people from drinking. Now, again, AA was not against drinking in any way, but right. they were for it. But here's two sides, but this here fits the elite. They often fund both sides of sure. the issue. Just like wars, they, fi- they, they fund both sides of a war because then they can profiteer exactly. uh, off both sides itself. But, but you know, it makes me suspect, this was another, when I saw this, another case history of what we know about America and about our national and world history has been written by PR men. Mm-hmm. I, at least not the only one. There have been a bunch of PR men that have rewritten all of our, quote, heroes, uh, our presidents, our generals like Pat and others, MacArthur, uh, the founding fathers. There have been PR men that have gone back and rechanged the record. Uh, excise certain information from the records that, that we don't know. Dumb down our education system so we don't have, you know, people who are seeking information like you. Know how to even dig for answers or even care to. So, so this is just another case. And, and they don't care who they do it for, whether it's for Hitler, whether it's for AA, Rockefeller. Whoever pays the bills is basically what they do. And so that's why this AA is more than just about how does it impact alcoholics. This has impacted our entire society. And, and it's an illness that goes far beyond alcoholism of, of what it really exposes. Um, now, uh, our, our, our last question before I wrap up is about what you talk about late in your book about alcoholism being a disease, which is what they, what they teach in AA uh, as a way for them to, to feel some sympathy and that it's not their fault and, and things like this. What, what do you think about that idea about alcoholism as a disease and AA's track record of success to date? as far as being success and getting people back on the wagon? Well, I don't believe that AR, that alcoholism, is a disease for one main reason, and that is the scripture tells us that the drunkard will not inherit heaven. No other disease will keep you out of heaven. And therefore, that cannot be a disease or we wouldn't be kept out of heaven. But, so, you know, alcoholism is a sin, it's a choice. And what uh, you have to ask, too, if it's a disease, why do drunk drivers get arrested and have to spend time in jail? You mm-hmm. don't get arrested for cancer. You don't get, you know, for other things. Sure. Uh, what what other disease would result in a fine? If it's a disease, why does it require a license to produce it? Uh, why Why is it spread by advertising and so on? So if it is a disease, it's the only disease that really doesn't have a germ or a virus cause. Mm-hmm. It's the only disease that incites crime. And it's being bragged up and promoted to the public. You're not going to go out there and see ads, you know, here, get this um, tuberculosis. But you do see, you know, buy such and such a, a beer or a wine or whatever. So, And then I thought of interest, too, was um, Nan Robertson. She's an AA proponent, and she says, how can you tell if you are an alcoholic? And then her answer is, only you can make that decision. Now, there's no other disease that you decide if you right. have it or not. You know, this has nothing to do with medical. And then as far as the success rate in um, AA, it has the worst track record as 
uh, of any group at all as far as treatment. When I call the AA headquarters and ask about their success rate, they say, oh, we don't keep records. Well, when I searched further, I thought, well, no wonder you don't keep records. If you kept records, who'd want to attend? Right. Because they, they found out. And then people said, but how can, can you see all the success? This one's out there saying, you know, they, they're in AA and they're successful. The thing is, those people have a group to publicize them. And they look more successful than the neighbor down the street that was the town drunk and quits drinking because nobody's going to mention it. They're not going to go out and sure. say, oh, so-and-so sure. you know, is a member. So this is why it looks so um, good. And the thing is, people come into AA basically at their lowest point. But at that point, most of them will um, have a recovery, at least for a little period. Mm-hmm. I know I had a second cousin. She went into AA, oh, wonderful. And she said, oh, she told her grandmother, Grandma, I need God in my life. She, mm-hmm. Oh, and she stopped drinking. But the thing is, just for a while, she's back to it. Sure. It doesn't really last, but it looks good for the first few months. If you look, even Eddie Thatcher that we talked about that brought the message to Bill, after about two years, he went back to drinking. In fact, I believe he died an alcoholic. Most of those, and even, uh, again, you go through AA literature time and time and time again, they said there were failures galore. They couldn't get anybody else to sober up. Those they did would only last a few months. Uh, they even put on several people on that alcoholic foundation where the Rockefellers sat on that board or their men. And several of those people from the alcoholic section ended up getting drunk and had to resign. Yeah. The failure rate is very high. That's that's pretty bad, you know. And, and you in your book cite hard, very prestigious medical studies, long-term, highly controlled, uh, high-quality medical studies that were done in the medical journals. Numerous ones you report where they show that the the success rate, the long-term success rate in preventing alcoholism of AA uh, recipients, is actually a lower success rate than those that received no treatment at all. Mm-hmm. And they admit that repeatedly. This is repeatedly in the thing. No treatment at all was actually a, a higher rate uh, of, uh, you know, preventing what's it called, recidivism, I guess, or, or returning back to it at that time. Um, in, in, in concluding this and sort of putting all this information in perspective, what do you surmise could be Satan's possible strategy in promoting the AE program and mission? Was it to take those under his initial grip to alcoholism and use the AA religion as a means to further tighten his grip on them spiritually, uh, even if he freed them from a short time from the physical effects, uh, or maybe even use it as another opportunity to support the development of a, another worldwide ecumenical religion? Or, or this or any other reason you think why, why he's behind it in this way? Well, as far back as 1917, John D. Rockefeller was promoting a universal ecumenicism. And here's what he wrote. He said, Would that I had the power to bring to your minds the vision as it unfolds before me. I see all the nominational emphasis set aside. I see the church molding the thought of the world as it has never done before, leading in all great movements as it should. I see it literally establishing the kingdom of God on earth, unquote. And then he went on to support something like AA. Mm-hmm. Was this a form you know, of a, a new organization? Was this the ecumenical movement that you're referring to? Uh, was he trying to start a Rockefeller church, you could call it? Sure. And as they did these things, it also takes us, one, it gives us this, well, we're all okay. All roads lead to God. There's many paths to God. You have your way. I have mine. You know, 
and it gives you this idea for one thing. It gives us a feeling that we are worshiping. I mean, human beings are made to worship. And this is it with the Antichrist. When he comes on the scene, he does not want to be received by an atheistic society. He needs someone who is going to worship. And That's right. here right. is leading us. We, we feel we're okay because we're in a group or we mention God or, you know, mention it or what, whatever. But I believe it is leading us down to the road to accept the Antichrist in the long run, and we really mm-hmm. must be very careful. And without having a, a fixed absolute from the Bible, uh, someone like a John D. Rockefeller or somebody more powerful after him can come in and become the higher power. And mm-hmm. we've already structured the group thinking, the, 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 the group morality as a way to indoctrinate and accept this force uh, from a tyrannical person to come in and become that higher power instead of having to be compared to that absolute that we have in Christianity. Um, do Christians have a duty to confront this movement, and if so, how? And what do you offer as an alternative means of deliverance for those who maybe are in the grip of alcoholism that may hear us? We've just got a couple of minutes, if you could just share that minute or two. Well, we do have a, a, an obligation as a Christian to reach the alcoholic, or anyone else for that matter, because... We're given that great commission. We are to go out and make disciples of all nations. We do have to help the alcoholics, but the AA is not the way to help them. We need to present. Really, we don't even need 12 steps. All we really need is one step to the cross. And as Christians, we have a duty to give that message, not just to the alcoholic, but to all those who are sinners. And sometimes I think even with the AA, when they become sober, it's more of a problem because they think they brought themselves up by their own boots. Whereas if we can actually go out and talk to the drunken alcoholic out there, we may have a better chance of winning them and presenting them with the gospel because they know they can't do it on their own. So AA has really, really hurt the church. But yes, as a Christian, we do have to reach out. We have to give them the message of love. And the main thing is, too, we have to know the scriptures, and we present to them, and the Bible says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of, of, of all unrighteousness. And the thing is, this is not just for the alcoholic. All have sinned. All have come mm-hmm. short of the glory of God. We all need a Savior. And as a Christian, it is our duty to go out and win all we can before it is too late. Mm-hmm. Amen, sister. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. And... Uh, I, I don't know how I could put it better uh, other than you need to seek the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the true higher power that has the power and the strength to break the, the chains of sin, yeah. whether it be alcoholism or other yeah, addiction. Your own understanding. That's right. Just, or addiction or Jesus. whatever else whatever else may be besetting you. And we all have things beset us, but we don't have that power within us. Uh, the power is very clearly defined through the personal work of Jesus Christ. Uh, and, and for our listeners... Uh, you need to take the action of uh, Sister Kathy here, who who took all this effort to put this book together. Uh, you need to get copies of this book to give to your friends and loved ones who are struggling with alcohol, who has some connection to AA or considering it, to teach other people in your church. Maybe even have a class on Sunday night at church or something like that about this. And so uh, how can people get your book and study this topic further? Well, the easiest way would just go um, to Amazon.com and order it through there. Okay. That would be the easy. Or they could go into a bookstore and they could give the ISBN number. That number would be 1560434994X. Okay. 
That's one five six zero four three four four nine x or Amazon.com. And we'll, we will put the link to the Amazon.com and FutureQuake.com uh, with this show. People download the show, they can go directly to get this book. Um, thank you so much, Sister, for your faithful work for the Lord. And, and I praise the Lord and, and your stamina for holding your voice up mm-hmm. for this entire endurance. We, we, we got more useful information per minute in an entire interview than I think we've had. We've had some doozies in our show, but that was just chocked full of very, very important and eye-opening information. So we, we are going to have to say goodbye, but I want to thank you so much. And please come back for uh, some of your other books you've written. Would you, would you come back for a return visit with us? Okay, and thank you so much for the opportunity again. Thank you again, and God bless. We're back at Future Quake with Dr. Future. And Tom, no fan of the Rockefellers, once again, Bionic. Same cast of characters. Even, mm-hmm. you know, Dulles ended up in there. Yeah. And a bunch of other characters. They all show up in these things that impact us a million different ways, don't, don't they? Don't you feel like all this information makes you feel like you're on a big squirrel wheel? <laughs> yeah. You know? But you know what? We keep shining the light on the wheel anyway. Sure. And come back tomorrow. We'll have some new news to share with you. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom. The news gets weirder and weirder every day, but I'm going to still hang with it. Bionic. Well, you know, I guess that's good because we'd be out of business if all of a sudden the world yeah. got sane. Yeah. You and I'd be looking welcome for to, real welcome jobs. Welcome to Future Quake. Everything's happy. <laughs> that's right. Everything <laughs> makes sense. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, it's great to be back with you for another week of the Future Quake Show. Um, you know, this is Friday, so uh, we hope you enjoyed the interview this week. And this week being Friday, or this day being Friday means what, Tom Bionic? Well, I can see from the evil eye that uh, it is clearly, yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, it is today's tremors or tomorrow's review of the future's news. Tomorrow's view of the future's news? Review. Yeah, I think that's good. I think that's good. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I was... If I got that evil da- eye down, I could actually run for a senator from Delaware. Yeah, I was say, <laughs> well, anybody's running these days. Yeah. I mean, you know, whatever. Just get, just make sure you get your uh, Tea Party endorsement. <laughs> well, uh, we've got some news to cover, but mm-hmm. would you want me to make some quick announcements real quick? Yeah, I know we got a couple things that need to get mentioned. Uh, there's something I wanted to share with our Futurian listeners. It's just come up, and actually, it's not predicated by what I mentioned a couple weeks ago. Uh, talking to our listeners about just being praying for opportunities for us to grow and expand. Uh, actually been looking into some veins in that area, but something else happened. And uh, not liberty to share information, but what, what I would like to tell you is uh, I'm allowed to ask you if you could please pray for the radio station WENO that uh, we broadcast on, our show's broadcast on, and also for their staff. If you could please keep them in your prayers. Um, if I'm able to share more, I'll share with you, but uh, mm-hmm. please keep them in your prayers. And these people have been really, really good to us, mm-hmm. and the Lord has used WNO mm-hmm. and the people there. Um, it would have had a major impact. Well, our show might be off the air. It might be done with because we, we really Very thought likely. about yeah. the possibility of just sort of folding up our tents mm-hmm. back in the spring of 2008 when the Christian themes that we had on our show caused us to 
sort of fallen persona non grata status yeah. with our prior radio station. Mm-hmm. And uh, we laid out some fleeces, and the WENO opportunity came up. And it's really led into our golden age, if there is one in future quake, mm-hmm. I believe. Unless there's like 20 years, 20 more years left on the show. Could be, you yeah. know. The Lord tarries 100 years yeah, or more. We're, we're walking around here with, <laughs> you know, right. canes and stuff. Right. But we, we owe a special debt to WNO and so do our listeners as yes, well. Yes, very much so. Uh, the, the, the opportunity and the even the credibility that they provided to us has has facilitated us, I'm sure, with some of the guests that we've had mm-hmm. that we wouldn't have otherwise been able to get on the show, mm-hmm. uh, as well as new new listeners. And and I think I can also mention this too. You were you were there to witness this. Uh, met some folks that came to visit their church. Yeah, I was happy to meet them. Yeah, I want to give a call out to y'all out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were talking and happened to ask them why they visited our church and. They said that they, the gentleman said that at, at his lunch break during the afternoon, he'd go in his car and listen to these two guys on the radio so they every were day. Crazy, he were out of their mind. Listen to these two guys, and he happened to find out that they went to church there yeah. and checked it out. And sometime after we were talking, the light bulb went on his head and realized who he was talking to. So <laughs> it's like we're talking to them right now, honey. Yeah. So that was hilarious. Just want to say hey to you out there. Mm-hmm. But see, that's the thing that. The, the wonderful blessings uh, of WNO mm-hmm. is it provided us a way to meet a gentleman like that who would never know about us or not even know to look on the Internet mm-hmm. for us. And uh, we're just very grateful for that. So we're going to leave it at that. Mm-hmm. But I would like to just reiterate to our listeners, uh, they often ask what they can do for us, things that they could do. I, I'd like to reiterate something with you all that I should remind you occasionally. We we could really use your all's help to be our agents to help our expansion of Future Quake. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you all can actually send emails to places. In fact, I'd love for you to send emails to WNO and tell mm-hmm. them thanks. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, other places, if you have a local Christian radio station that'd like to pick up a show, why don't you email your local station where you are? Ask them to do it so other people in your neighborhood, in your community, could hear about Future Quake. Mm-hmm. Uh, be sure and put your name and town in it and CC us uh, at, at uh, the, our email address we give, Future drfuture at futurequake.com, so we can know who you've contacted. Because we'd mm-hmm. like to know, uh, and it gives us a way to find out. In fact, we would love everyone out in our audience, if you get a moment, to just email us, period. If you've never emailed Future Quake, just say your name and town, where you're from, mm-hmm. and if you want to share anything color. else, your favorite color, because we'd really like to know there's there's so many tens of thousands of people out there we can document that listen, uh, and only a subset of those actually email, and those are real blessings to us when mm-hmm. they email. So. Anyway, uh, be thinking about some ways you can spread the word even online, like going to some message boards, talking about some of the topics we talked about, mention Future Quake, mm-hmm. mention people to go there, anywhere, Facebook, where, wherever it is, mention some of these kind of things. And mm-hmm. you could play a key role in the expansion of this ministry. Indeed. End of statement there. on I, the news. It was a good statement. Um, do you want to go first or should I go first? I don't care. I know, but I'm asking, do you want to go first? Well, if I do, I have two little mini stories that are related mm-hmm. backed up by two other stories that are related to it. So that might be my block for the day. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what. Let me do Let me do a quick one, and we can get into your first block. Got it. All right. Um, do we want to hear about the implanted fuel cells powered by rat body fluids, or do we want to hear about the helmet of obedience? Helmet of ob- ob- obedience has a ring to it. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Reminiscent of the Collar of Obedience, uh, the, it's called DARPA Develops Helmet of Obedience, the name of the article. Okay. Reminiscent of... Where is that from, by the way? Uh, you know, it was uh, 
I, I deleted that, unfortunately. I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, my bad. I'll uh, I'll have to do a retraction next week, uh, or at least a follow-up. <laughs> okay. Uh, I wrote it in crayon. Let's get down to okay. brass next. We should do our retractions in advance, even before we share information. Yeah, there you go. Um, reminiscent of the collar of obedience from Star Trek, this new helmet, according to its creator, William J. Tyler at Arizona State University, will be able to non-invasively produce all the same effects that are now possible only through deep surgical implants. Employing a form of targeted ultrasound technology, the helmet of obedience will be able to manipulate pain and motivational centers in the brain at a finer scale than, e- than even current magnetic stimulation. Uh, so the upshot is, is they put this helmet on you and they can control you. That's the upshot. Yeah. Or the downshot, depending on where you're standing and who you're shooting at. Yeah, I hate to see what the bad news is. Yeah. The good news is that everybody's compliant. Yeah. The bad news is that... Everybody's compliant. Yeah. It's no mystery that HCs would be interested in this sort of technology, and Tyler made it painfully clear who his handlers are. Uh, According to Tyler, we look forward to developing a close working relationship with DARPA and other Department of Defense and U.S. intelligence communities to bring some of these applications to fruition over the coming years, depending on the most pressing needs of our country's defense industries. Certainly, everyone is well aware, well aware how the poor, under-equipped, underfunded, largest military-industrial complex in the world has such, quote-unquote, pressing needs for this new technology. Um, no comment. <laughs> uh, but wait, there's more. But wait, there's more. Yeah. Tyler is obviously a man with lots of DARPA grant money and time on his hands. When he's not busy developing the helmet of obedience, he's hard at work on another much-needed technology that will become a boon to mankind, MyBrainCloud.net. According to Tyler, MyBrainCloud.net is a concept application of non-invasive brain stimulation using pulsed ultrasound, which is likely to emerge in the future. The concept is essentially to provide individual users with a personalized connection port through which various brain stimulation protocols can be administered in an open access manner using cloud computing. Hmm. (laughs) Uh, This technology has many broad applications ranging from at-home medicine to recreational applications such as interactive video gaming and virtual experience downloading. So it looks like Tyler might go down in history as the invent- inventor not only of not only the Star Trek-style helmet of obedience, but also the Matrix-style human-machine interface port, two dystopian science fiction inventions in one career. Now that's a level of achievement even the most egotistical Harvard-educated uh, grant chaser could be proud of putting on their CV. That's true. Yep. I made the both helmet. the helmet of obedience and... The human brain port that could administer brain stimulation protocols using cloud computing. Mm. Maybe he should change his name to Judas Iscariot or something like that. You know, <laughs> betraying the human race and free people. Yeah. Well, he did get he did get his DARPA grant money, so you know, the cool. helmet of obedience. Yeah. Wow. The helmet of obedience. Well, now could they put that on? Like is it would it work like true serum? Could they put it on people they're interrogating and force them to tell the truth? Or I don't know. I don't know how that works. Mm-hmm. Uh, I imagine you could use it as some. That would obviously be a very feared thing. Like, look, yeah. tell us what you know, or we're going to put the helmet of obedience on you and make you fall in love with the chair. Right. You know. Right. 
or, or touch you know, your nose. Yeah, whatever it is, you know. Yeah. Do push-ups until you can't move. Right. Um, there used to be a, a lady, I forget her name, back in the 60s. It was Pat something out of Hollywood. She was known as the hip hypnotist. And she would get famous figures on stage and then make them cluck like a chicken and do stuff like that. They'd embarrass themselves under hypnosis like that. Well, it it's, uh, makes me wonder if I'm under hypnosis sometimes because of the stuff that I say. And I've tried to understand what the explanation would be. <laughs> I've started counseling it's like myself. He tried to make a movie, but it's like he had a large blow to the head. I don't remember what that was related to. Would you like for me to share a story here? Yeah, please. Okay. It's hard to beat the helmet of obedience, yeah, but well, I got I got one that tops it, I think. This this relates this is a throwback to the news in the last few weeks about the uh a book burning. Mm-hmm. We've had this thing about, you know, right here in our region here, we mm-hmm. had book uh um Qurans that were burnt. And they followed through with it here and had it done. It's been a big thing in the news. Well, I went back and looked, and this was just, this was two years ago. But this the purpose of this story, while I'm sharing it, is to show that issues aren't always as simplistic as we in the Christian community would like them to be, and like to say, okay, this person has a black hat, this person has a white. This is you know clear. Yeah, it's all like it's not like bananas. It, it's a little little more complex than that. Okay, here here's here's a golden oldie sort of comparing back to this theme. Um, Orthodox Jewish youths burn New Testaments uh, in Or Yehuda. That's in Israel. Mm-hmm. And this comes from the Haaretz Daily Newspaper um, and Associated Press. It says, Orthodox Jews set fire to hundreds of copies of the New Testament in the latest act of violence against Christian missionaries in the Holy Land. Or Yehuda Deputy Mayor Uzi Aaron said missionaries recently entered a neighborhood in a predominantly religious town of 34,000 in central Israel, distributing hundreds of New Testaments and missionary material. After receiving complaints, Aaron said, he got into a loudspeaker car last Thursday. Now, this is the deputy mayor, okay? Mm -hmm. He got into a loudspeaker car last Thursday and drove through the neighborhood, urging people to turn over the material to Jewish religious students who went door-to-door to to collect it. Mm -hmm. So they went to go collect the Bibles out of people's homes. Okay, the books were dumped into a pile and set a fire in a lot near a synagogue, he said. The newspaper, Mariv, reported Tuesday that hundreds of yeshiva students took part in the book burning. But Aaron told the Associated Press that only a few students were present and that he was not there when the books were torched. Not all the New Testaments that were collected were burned, but hundreds were, he said. He said he regretted the burning of the books, but called it a commandment to burn materials that urged Jews to convert. I certainly don't denounce the burning of the booklets, he said. I denounce those who distributed the booklets. Jews worship from the Old Testament, including the first five books of Moses and the writings of the ancient prophets. Christian revered the Old Testament as well as the New, which contains the ministry of Jesus. Khalif Myers, an attorney who represents Messianic Jews, or Jews who accept Jesus as their Savior, demanded in an interview with Army Radio that all those involved should be put on trial. He estimated there were 10,000 Messianic Jews who are also known as Jews for Jesus in Israel. Police had no immediate comment. Israeli authorities and Orthodox Jews frown on missionary activity aimed at Jews. Books, uh, uh, though in most cases it's not illegal, in most cases. Still, the concept of a Jew burning books is abhorrent to many in Israel because of the association with Nazis torching piles of Jewish books Mm -hmm. during the Holocaust and World War II. Earlier this year, the teenage son of a prominent Christian missionary was seriously wounded 
when a package bomb delivered to the family's West Bank home went off in his hands. So they blew up a Christian missionary. Yeah, and I'll have some awesome. more details on that. Le- that was sort of like a terror. Showing the love to, love to the strangers of the land, the it's, aliens. Yeah. It sort of sounds like a terrorist attack to me. Yep. Last year, arsonists burst into a Jerusalem church used by Messianic Jews and set the building on fire, raising suspicions that Jewish extremists were behind the attack. No one claimed responsibility, but the same church was burned down 25 years ago by ultra-Orthodox Jewish extremists. And here, here's a here's a related story on this. Uh, this is from uh, also from Heretz. Uh, evangelicals, uh, this is at the same time period, urged police to act on harassment of Messianic Jews. Uh, uh, a leading evangelical organization on Israel has called on local police to stop overlooking cases of harassment, intimidation, and even physical violence against Messianic Jews in the wake of last month's attack which seriously injured a member of Ariel's small Christian missionary community. In an open letter released Sunday, the International Christian Embassy in Jerusalem condemned the attack against 15-year-old Ami Ortiz, son of the prominent Messianic pastor David Ortiz, breaking some three weeks of silence on the subject. We urge Israeli authorities to take this criminal assault seriously and to commit all the resources, manpower, and willpower necessary to see the investigation to the conclusion. Uh, it says the Purim gift basket bombing has caught the attention of the Christian world, and Israel needs to assure everyone that it is indeed a democracy that safeguards the rights and lives of religious minorities. The organization refrained from reacting to the attack earlier. The statement said it hopes that the police investigation will quickly identify those responsible. Mm. So, anyway, um, if you if you want to move on. I know we're getting late, but there's, I have two more things because it's, it gets even more complicated than that. Basically, these were Purim gifts that were brought, you know, where mm-hmm. they give gifts during mm-hmm. that time, and it was a, a bomb. A bomb. For Christians. Like you said, basically, it's a terrorist attack against Christians. Right. Yeah. But now the Messianic Jews fall in another interesting category, and I have a story on this. This is something we don't hear a lot in Christian circles. Mm-hmm. They don't consider themselves Christians. Messianic Jews? The, of the ones that I quote here oh, in this well, community, they don't. They what they do is they consider themselves Jews that embrace Jesus Christ. In other words, the law, everything else, still applies, well, but Jesus Christ is on top of, of it. Of the Messianic Jews that I've met, that's certainly not the case. Right. Yeah. Well, and that's what I mean. It gets very complicated yeah. sorting all. It's not always as black and white as you know. In in all of us who who are involved in our churches are are subject to this. You'll have a speaker come in on any of these kind of topics, Mm -hmm. and they'll give you a one-hour version, and you think you know what's going on. Yeah, and in reality, it's not even close to whether whether it's about Judaism, Islam, other Mm -hmm. issues in society, whatever. And it's it's of course it's good to have people come in and talk about these topics, Mm -hmm. but you don't really get the whole story. So if you want to move on with something, I can. Are you sure? Okay. Uh, this is a little story that, that comes from Ynet News, also tied over with Israel too in the Jewish community. Uh, it says, Jesus lives on in Jerusalem, the Israel Jewish scene. Um, thousands of Messianic Jews reside in Israel, perform Jewish ceremonies, and serve at IDF. It says, some 15,000 Messianic Jews currently live in Israel, but if you saw one on the streets, you would fail to recognize the difference. They honor Jewish circumcision, bar mitzvah, and wedding ceremonies, but believe Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, the small community of Yad Hashmona near Jerusalem is home to a number of Messianic Jewish communities. They believe in Jesus, or Yeshua as they call him, 
and in the teachings of the New Testament as well as the Old. They are Jews in every sense, but for the most part keep this side of their faith to themselves. When these family gathers for the Shabbat meal, however, Jesus is the guest star at their tables. Hmm. It says about 350,000 Messianic Jews live in the U.S., uh, and one would be just as hard-pressed to recognize them there as in Israel. Some are Orthodox and dress as the Haredim do, while others are traditional and wear a yarmulke or no religious symbol at all. They are for the most part Zionist and see IDF service as a top priority. Uh, in the army, they serve as pilots, commanders, and elite unit members. Um, it says, the fact that Jesus was Jewish is generally agreed upon, but what happened after his death is subject to rancorous theological debate. Um, now, this this is very interesting. It says, but in separating between Jews and Christians, history largely ignores the story of those Jewish people who believed Christ was the Messiah and uh and continued this tradition well after his death, the ancestors of the Messianic Jewish faith in modern times. Hmm. Now, um, l- l- let me just give you an example of one of these people that, whose testimony is in here. Um, it says, by the way, that uh, this gentleman, uh, Jonathan Bar-David, uh, who is a Messianic Jew in Israel, he was a paratrooper in IDF, it says, he explains how he is able to maintain his faith while living in secular Israeli society. We don't exactly have secular and religious people in our community. Uh, faith in Yeshua is personal. If you decide to be secular, that's a very significant statement. Um, he, uh, he says, however, there are many daily tasks required by the Messianic religion. There are a lot of prayers before a meal, before traveling, before bed. A Messianic family has some ten prayers thanking Yeshua the Messiah. Uh, the Jewish rites or mitzvahs and Bar David, uh, that Bar David performs are also plentiful. Uh, and so anyway, they, he fasts on Yom Kippur but doesn't keep kosher. Um, now, um, just to give you another example, this, uh, another person, Lehi Inaib, is a 52-year-old student of Second Tem- uh, Temple Literature. Until the age of 35, she was totally uninterested in religion but busied herself with the healing profession. But she got a copy of the New Testament, and she was immediately captivated by Christ's powers as healer. Uh, she became interested in the Old Testament as well, and her path to Messianic Judaism becomes clear. Uh, but she says, uh, uh, she says when she, or he, excuse me, he, when he came of age in the 70s, uh, in, in, uh, this is Asher and Turter, I'm sorry, I've skipped over here to a rabbi, Messianic rabbi, Jerusalem. And Turter decided to delve into every religion he could think of, aside from Christianity, which didn't interest me. He finally decided Messianic Judaism was most suitable for him. Now, he's a rabbi. So, well, wait a minute. That doesn't make any sense. He looked in a bunch of religions and just said, I think this one fits me best. Yeah, but he said he didn't, he, he wasn't interested in Christianity, but he chose Messianic Judaism. Uh, and he says, he, you know, he's a, he's a rabbi. He says he perceives Messianic Jews as the followers of first century Jews who dispersed after the destruction of the Second Temple, and Christianity as the erroneous development of the Messianic faith among non-Jews. What? They were wrong, and we must now lead the movement to fix this mistake, he says. It is our global mission. Well, that's certainly not the not the Messianic Jews that I know. So, yeah, and I'm not trying to say he speaks for all or what percentage, but it evidently suggests things are a little more complicated than what we might think. And when I was reading this story and, and saw these different testimonies, because they, they still believe in doing all of the Jewish... Mm-hmm. Laws, ceremonies—they ex- exclude some. I don't have any idea why they do some and not others. Mm-hmm. 
but they believe it's important. And what it reminded me of a little bit was the Judaizers back in the time when Peter was sort of on the fence with keeping the circumcision or anything, mm-hmm. and Paul said, no, you know, we're yeah, a new covenant. As a as a condition of being good before God, right? No, it's yeah. not. It's it's we're you know we're in a new covenant, yeah. uh, and so it's a little hard to, to put easy labels on people anymore. Mm-hmm. I guess is what I'm saying. So that's well, all I'll say on that story. Well, I don't know. I mean, two white hats here, riding off into the sunset. You know, good guys. Like me, me and you. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's really what it comes down. Sure. to. Sure, we can label ourselves good guys. Yeah. Well, all right. Do you want to hear? Um, let me let me get on here with this the uh, with this one that I was just really intrigued by. Implanted fuel cell powered by rats' body fluids. <laughs> okay. Uh, this is via the National Geographic. Uh, a new fuel cell. This one's pretty quick. A new fuel cell is putting a twist on alternative energy from biofuels. The implanted device draws power from chemicals in living animals. Dubbed a glucose biofuel cell, the implant gets its juice, funny, from glucose, a.k.a. blood sugar and oxygen, both of which are naturally present in the fluids between a body's cells. In a recent study, researchers created a test version of their glucose biofuel cell and implanted it in a white lab rat named Ricky. The rat sported the device successfully for 11 days and suffered no ill effects. Boy, wouldn't that be wild to be Ricky? You like mm-hmm. get a you know hey, get a laced food, hey, pellet, laced food pellet, and you wake up and you've got this huge thing bulging out of your neck. And he's just making making fuel. Yep, making energy. Wires running from the fuel cell out of the rat's neck showed the device was producing a significant amount of energy. The team hopes that their biofuel cell could one day provide safe, longer-lasting power to the next generation of medical implants such as smaller pacemakers and artificial organs. You just have to attach the rat to somebody's body yeah, when they got Yeah, the rat that. is the key. Huh. Got this rat, Ricky the rat, poking out of your shoulder. So that's that's the downside, sir, when you come in for tr- Good news is we've got a treatment for you. The downside is you've got to have a rat attached to you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is pretty scary, though, when you're talking about using biological material uh-huh. to process energy. Yep. Because there's been talk about robots. So that mm-hmm. can actually process biofuel, right? Mm-hmm. Or they could actually, off corpses. I read a story where they were actually could use corpses in the battlefield mm-hmm. to power robots. Yeah, I know it's scary. Now you give them an, now you give them uh, a vested interest in killing people. They have a prime directive in their blood for their own yeah. survival mm-hmm. that they've got to do that. I know it's too crazy. It's like Night of the Living Dead, but it's robot generated. But instead, of, yeah, instead it's like super powered robots with. It's not like they're like slow, like here we come. They're really fast, yeah. and they've got an implanted Gatling gun on their shoulder. Yeah, I hate when that happens. Well, you yeah. see, the other thing is, when the FEMA truck eventually comes to pick up you and me, mm-hmm. they knock us out. We wake up, and we got these big things stuck on the side of our neck, and they're taking the juice out of us to power energy for their vehicles. Hmm. We're Ricky the Rat next. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. You know, it used to be in the old days, like the days of. Uh, Samson and stuff, they just poke your eyes out and stick you on some big wheel that had to turn around, you know, mm-hmm. to grind meal or something, you know, or, or like oars on a rowboat where you'd be the slave rowers. Well, now they'll just go directly to our biochemistry and yeah, just suck it out directly. That's so, so weird. I don't even know where to begin. Like, I mean, I, I, it wouldn't be unheard of and probably even likely that at some point in the future, you know, 
people who are doing a long stretch in prison will get uh, will fall asleep yeah. and wake up with a thing running out of their neck, mm-hmm. you know, and they're running the lights and the, uh, you know, mm-hmm. twenty of them are running the lights on that wing. Be about as crazy as having conservatives get around a uh, candidate that says she was a practicing Wiccan on an altar of Satan on TV. Oh, you got another story? No, that would never happen. Yeah. Oh, we got to go. Uh, Maybe we can share that for another day. Hopefully people have caught that in the news mm-hmm. about uh, the newly uh, elected Republican candidate for senator uh, talking about how she, uh, you know, would get on the altar for Satan, you know, and her dates what? as a practicing wicked. Yeah. Whoa. O'Donnell. Uh, yeah. She's the, the big one in the news. Sarah Palin's behind her. Um, so, you know, stranger days are coming. I don't see how it could get much stranger. Well, I, I tell you how it could get stranger. Merv, would you put on your uh, helmet of obedience and come here and tell them how to contact us at Future Quake? Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, we got to go. Yeah, let's get out of here. Come back for another interesting uh, show next week. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. See you. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake.